The Psychedologist. Hello, friends. Women and women, men, boys, girls, and our friends beyond the binary. This is The Psychedologist. You're tuned in to Consciousness Positive Radio. This episode is a recording of three talks and a panel discussion from the Sunday portion of our Boston Entheogenic Network event, A Trip to the Past, Boston's Psychedelic History. The speakers, in order, are Carl Ruck, Wendy Chapkiss, and Rick Doblin. These three talks are followed by a panel discussion with the three speakers, plus authors John Latin and Bill Richards, moderated by yours truly. The theme of this event was an exploration of Boston's very rich psychedelic history, along with an overall dive into psychedelics in a historical and current context through the lens of religion, social justice, medicine, and healing, and beyond. The speakers are introduced before each of their talks, so I'll not delay you any longer. Thanks for tuning in to Consciousness Positive Radio with The Psychedologist. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Nathaniel Putnam. Thank you for coming out today on this beautiful Sunday morning. I'm one of the co-founders of the Boston Antigenic Network, and I want to thank everyone for being here. Uh, so there's going to be three presentations today, and then we're going to take uh, our lunch break around noon, and then we're going to come back for a panel discussion uh, with all of the speakers. Uh, so first off, Carl uh, Ruck is going to speak, and then um, Wendy Chapkis, followed by uh, Rick Doblin, the Executive Director of MAPS. Um, so we're going to do introductions. Uh, Angela Wilson, who is our band member, will be introducing Carl. All right, welcome everyone. Um, Carl A.P. Ruck is a professor of classics at Boston University, an authority on the ecstatic rituals of the god Dionysus. With the ethnomycologist R. Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman, he identified the secret psychoactive ingredient in the visionary potion that was drunk by the initiates at the Eleusinian Mystery. In Persephone's quest, Entheogens and the Origins of Religion, he proclaimed the centrality of psychoactive sacraments at the very beginnings of religion, employing the neologism entheogen to free the topic from the pejorative connotations for words like drug or hallucinogen. His publications include Mushrooms, Myth, and Mithras, the drug cult that civilized Europe, The Effluence of Deity, Alchemy and Psychoactive Sacraments in Medieval and Renaissance Art, Sacred Mushrooms of the Goddess, Secrets of Eleusis, Entheogens, Myth and Human Consciousness, Dionysus in Thrace, The Sun Conceived in Drunkenness, The Great Gods of Samothrace, and The Cult of the Little People. That was Carl Ruck. Thank you. Um, you all know that something happened of importance here in Boston. And that was what became, is this coming through? Yes. The, uh, the psychedelic revolution. Most people trace it to what happened the, in the late 1960s at Harvard. But I want to tell you that it happened a decade earlier. And um, I eventually became involved in it. And so I want to put the blame or the credit for what happened to my late colleague, R. Gordon Wasson, 
this is the last photograph of him uh, in, 19, uh, in 1950, a year before he died, in 1956, just before the publication of our last work together. Here he is in his garden in his uh, estate in Danbury, Connecticut. And you probably all know this story. It eventually became a myth. Um, Lawson um, was betrothed to a Russian emigre who was a medical student in London. Uh, her parents uh, didn't want her to get married until um, she got her degree. And so they had a five-year courtship. And when they finally married on their honeymoon, uh, an event um, that was to change his life and her life occurred. They were staying in a cottage in the Catskills, lent to them by a friend, and uh, they took a walk in the woods, and Valentina Pavlovna, his wife, saw all these beautiful mushrooms growing. And he thought they were all toadstools, loathsome, to touch them would kill him. She persisted in saying, no, they're quite nice. She picked them, cooked them, ate them. He was certain that she would be dead by morning, and she survived. So they began to wonder why it was that they had such a different attitude towards something so common as mushroom. As he said, in five years of courtship, it had never occurred to us to discuss something so fundamental as mushrooms. In, uh, he talks about this event in that last book we published together, Persephone's Quest, in which we elevated what Valentina was doing to the level of myth, Persephone picking the magical flower that precipitated the Eleusinian mystery. He said, I acted the perfect Anglo-Saxon oaf confronting a wood nymph I had never laid eyes upon. So eventually, as I said, it became a myth. And this is, uh, these are portraits of them about the time they were married. He um, taught himself to be a banker, uh, and, but he was always an amateur scholar. And so he pursued his career in banking. She pursued hers in, in medicine, but they spent their spare time together collecting all the evidence they could in, from European folklore and art about the attitude uh, displayed towards mushrooms. And they came to realize that cultures are divided in their attitude towards mushrooms. They came to call it mycophilic and mycophobic uh, cultures. And they, they assumed that it had to do with some kind of taboo against the use of a sacred substance. Russia, Russia, Russian has about 40 names for the mushroom. Although this is what is significant, it never has a name. They're always metaphors, but 40 loving metaphors. And in English, we have only four, and none of them are names either. When something is too sacred to name, it has no name. For example, Yahweh the Christian Judaic God, that is not his name. It's indicated by four consonants. And you must never learn to pronounce it correctly. Yahweh is the safe way of pronouncing it. 
why should you not pronounce it correctly? That would be blasphemous. If you can name it, you can control it. You can call it into being. So you must never name it. So what do we have in English? We have fungus, which is Latin, and not English, first of all. And secondly, it is the equivalent of the Greek spongus. It's a metaphor. It's a sponge describing the way that it absorbs water and, and quickly expands as it, as it fruits. It also means that it's uh, equated with, with uh, aquatic forms and, and, and so on. Much of this involved in the folkloric tradition about the mushroom. It can be called champignon, uh, but that's French. And that's not, so that's okay, that's, that's safe. And it means that it grows in the field, and that's not true of all mushrooms. They usually grow in the forest. Uh, you can call it, uh, 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 the Greeks called it uh, mykes, um, and that gives us mycology, the study of mushrooms. But that is not its name. Greek doesn't have a name for it either. Uh, too sacred. It means that it's slimy, covered with mucus, loathsome, and so on. The one word we have is toadstool, and that is obviously a metaphor. It means the loathsome toad sits upon it, perhaps materializes from it. The toad secretes, in fact, similar toxins to the, the particular mushroom that we're interested in. Um, but, of course, we have mushroom and a common name, but that's an importation from the French, too, so that doesn't count. And I'm almost embarrassed to say this because I've worked this, with this material staring me in the face for so many years, and suddenly appeared me, of course, in the first publication in 1978 with Watson, I already brought this up, but I didn't realize the full implication of it. It's silly to say, but a mushroom is a mushroom. And it, it, it entered French from that, derived from uh, late Latin musara, which means go moo, uh, derived from um, Greek mien, miaumai, which means go moo. Uh, to bellow, uh, or moo, like a cow or a bull. And that's very interesting, because the way the mushroom materialized is often as a cow or a bull in the folkloric tradition. So, in that last publication we did together, we made an you know, uh, audacious statement, the subtitle, uh, Antigens, and the origins of religion. We did make it plural, so we didn't want to say that we knew the absolute origin of religion, but probably it could be uh, singular. Something happened um, in the um, Paleolithic, um, at least, um, documented by uh, cave art uh, from this period, the Chauvet Cave, which has just been uh, uncovered, which in fact depicts a mushroom. Um, something happened at the very beginning of our evolution as a species that set us apart from the other animals on this planet, the other animate things on this planet, because animals are not the only animate thing probably on the planet. And we call this the spiritual awakening. What happened is that the human realized there was another dimension to existence that there was a spiritual dimension to existence. And this is perhaps why we evolved into the, the species that we are today. 
Our hominid ancestors experienced the spiritual awakening at the very dawn of consciousness that set them apart from the other creatures of our planet. It was a journey to another realm induced by a special food that belonged to the gods. And I am responsible for inventing the word entheogen. After the publication of our work on the mystery at Eleusis, modern Eleusina, um, we wanted to make the statement that these substances had a spiritual religious dimension to them. And none of the terms current at the time expressed this. And also, by this time, the uh, abuse of psychoactive uh, sacraments had become so common that it, it, in words like hallucinogen and psychedelic, all imply a whole culture, milieu, which we've gone beyond. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, we didn't like calling it psychedelic. And so um, I came up with the word entheogen. There's a Greek adjective, entheos, means God within you, theos, as in theology, same word as deos. It's a word that occurs in Greek, often referring to the state that one entered when one was possessed by the god Dionysus, the god of wine and other intoxicants. And I put it together with the root uh, for coming into being as an hallucinogen, and the word has worked. This was a plant that was animate with the spirit of deity. It was an entheogen. It was the visionary vehicle for the trip of the first shaman. I've worked with Peter Webster in France, uh, a chemist, um, and uh, he has argued that before the Last Supper, and I have to tell you, it's not my idea that you come closer to God by eating his flesh and blood. How gruesome. I don't do that. But before the Last Supper, commemorated by the Christian Eucharist, there was the First Supper, mythologized as the tree in Eden. Now we get into difficult problems. Really? The tree in Eden was an entheogen? Of course, couldn't be. Uh, I show you here the plant Corot fresco, which at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, was already recognized by the Ecological Society of France as depicting a mushroom. The serpent twined around it, uh, Adam and Eve. And uh, Wasson was intrigued by this, but he was an amateur scholar. He was professionally a banker, um, a a kind of gentleman scholar. And so he always deferred to authorities uh, on, on matters of this kind. So he went to look at it with Valentina and was uh, advised by Panofsky, um, the art historian, that that's the way they always depicted trees in medieval Renaissance art. And so he shied away from it. When John Allegro published The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, uh, Wasson was intrigued by the book but um, really couldn't understand it. Few people can as such an intricate argument based on, on linguistics and etymology. 
So he asked uh, authorities. He asked a, a, a Catholic monsignor, and he asked a Jewish rabbi what they thought of the book. I doubt that Wasson really got his way through the book. It's very difficult to read, especially if you're going to track down all of the references. And they said there's not a word of truth in it. So Wasson shied away from it. He was afraid of being contaminated by it. Um, more uh, recently, I was involved in the republication of the Sacred Mushroom and uh, the Cross and wrote a, uh, a foreword. I think it's an afterword, actually, for, for it. And um, so, obviously, I've come to realize that the book is valuable. Um, one of my earlier books, I avoided uh, putting Allegro in the bibliography because it would be at the very beginning of it, and people would condemn me for thinking there was any validity. I mentioned this because it's all quite interesting. The, um, the person with whom I worked in republishing the uh, Sacred Mushroom and the Cross has turned against me. He decided that Wasson um, turned against Allegro because, as a banker, he was handling the accounts of the Vatican, which is true, not all of them, <laughs> and that, that uh, he was protecting the Vatican and thus uh, turned against Allegro. And so this guy um, has uh, written bad things about uh, Allegro, uh, about Wasson, but then he also turned on me. Now, this is quite interesting because it's probably true. He's discovered that I am a secret agent, uh, <laughs> a super spy. Uh, and uh, obviously it's true. I mean, in fact, I bring it up as part of my cover, so you won't believe it. Uh, and so he begged me to tell him um, that I was to confess. And I said, well, Jan, if I told you, as they say, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> but as a matter of fact, in this last book, Wasson, after working with me uh, for a decade, uh, he came to say, I once said that there was no mushroom in the Bible. I was wrong. It plays a hidden role that is hidden from us until now, and a major one in what is the best known episode in the Old Testament, the Garden of Eden story, and what happened to Adam and Eve. So, a lot of my work has been in tracking down um, more of the sort of thing that Wasson did in the occurrence of the mushroom in art and literature, but in pursuit of this idea that the origin of religion can be traced to an entheogenic experience perhaps induced by a mushroom, which, as I said, there is a mushroom in the Chauvet Cave, 35,000 uh, before the Common Era. Uh, so I went uh, to Selva Pascuala in uh, southern Spain, and um, we, with a group of uh, scholars, we published um, what we found there. Uh, I mention this because this is the first publication in a peer-reviewed journal um, of, of, of uh, evidence that there was a mushroom involved in cave art, perhaps with a sacred meaning. We published the, the um, work with a mycologist who was a scientist, and he objected to the word entheogen because that does prejudge it as meaning that it has a religious significance. 
And so we call it a neurotropic mushroom, um, which is safe to say. The editors uh, liked the article, but it was sent out for review, and the reviewers took a whole year. And finally, came back and said, well, if you put a few perhapses in, we will accept it. <laughs> so, here you see um, the, the rock face. It's not a cave, but it's an overhang. It has a natural uh, formation, which could be imagined, especially if you were hallucinating, uh, as emerging in the form of a bull. And it's been beautifully painted to represent a bull. Why a bull? Because they're mushrooms, okay? <laughs> and uh, along the bottom, we have a number of people turning into mushrooms or mushrooms dancing. So here you see them. The, um, play, the site is interesting because there is a hole. This is towards the top of the mountain. It goes through the rock. And on the solstice, the light passes directly through. The, the date is uh, uh, Neolithic, about 6,000 uh, before the Common Era. And there's an area in front of it that's level, which probably was used for people dancing like mushrooms. So, um, Wasson and his wife, uh, as I said, uh, began collecting all the evidence they could of the uh, mushrooms and art and folklore. Uh, originally, uh, they thought it was going to be a cookbook on mushrooms, <laughs> but um, eventually they published it, and partially as publicity for this book, which Wasson was publishing at his own expense, only 500 copies. He was a banker. He it was an investment. <laughs> and so only 500 copies, um, and um, they were offered a considerable price. Um, as publicity for this, he uh, published in Life magazine the uh, account of what he and his wife had encountered when they uh, discovered that there were shamans in Mesoamerica, in the highlands of Oaxaca, uh, central uh, Mexico, who uh, were using mushrooms in a sacred ceremony. That Life magazine article, 1957, launched what became the psychedelic revolution. This is the copy of a picture of the title page of Valentina and Wasson's, um, Gordon's book, uh, Mushrooms, Russia in History. It was intended to be a limited edition, has never been republished. It now sells for several thousand dollars, um, but you can download a very good pirated edition with full-color <laughs> pictures if you just look for it on the web today. So, uh, having been alerted by Robert Graves, who became aware of Lawson's work with mushrooms and wrote to him, uh, Graves, the uh, classical scholar and poet and novelist, you know him probably as the author of I, Claudius, um, uh, he consulted Wasson uh, about mushrooms because Emperor Claudius died. He loved mushrooms, and his wife apparently gave him the wrong one and killed him. Um, uh, uh, Robert Graves was also um, 
hard up for money, and he saw Gordon as a banker and perhaps a possible uh, source of, uh, of support. Um, Graves put him, made him aware of a paper that Richard Evans Schultes at Harvard Botanical Museum had written. And so learning about these ceremonies at his own expense, he uh, financed several expeditions to the highlands of Oaxaca. First, he met the uh, son-in-law of this woman, and then finally, the one you see here, uh, Maria Sabina. He uh, tried to hide her identity in the Life magazine article by calling her Eva Mendez, but it soon was discovered who she was, and Oaxaca became a uh, destination for narco-tourism in the early 1960s. And this disclosure made people suddenly aware of something that the elite have always known, but have kept from you. And so, they, uh, one of the uh, 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 expeditions, uh, Wasson recorded the complete seance of Maria Sabina. And um, you can download her song also uh, from the web uh, and translation of it. But this is the sort of thing she says. This is a totally illiterate woman. She signed her name with a thumbprint. Uh, there's a world beyond ours, a world that is far away, near and invisible. And that, that is where God lives. She was Christian. The indigenous mushroom ceremony of her, of her heritage had been Christianized in, in her view. So she was thoroughly a Christian. Where the dead live, the spirits and the saints, a world where everything has already happened and everything is known. How can an illiterate woman say something like that? The sacred mushroom takes me by the hand and brings me to the world where everything is already known. You probably know this famous quote of William James, uh, beginning of the 20th century, our normal waking consciousness, rational consciousness, uh, as we call it, is but one special type of consciousness, whilst all about it, parted from it by the filmiest of screens, they're like potential forms of consciousness entirely different. Um, yes, there is a world beyond. And of particular interest, and one of the things I'm interested in is, uh, he obviously was experimenting with drugs. He was a um, member of the elite in the Boston area. Um, were other people who were his equals in the elite doing it? That's very interesting. What were the Victorians doing? What were the celebrities of the age doing? And so I've been investigating that also. So he published the uh, one of the seances uh, as Maria Sabina and her mushroom Velada. So as I said, people suddenly became aware of what the elite have always known, what William James knew, probably <coughs> what Wordsworth knew, what the transcendentalists knew, probably the people um, who consorted with these people like Isabella Stewart Gardner, and so on. Um, they all knew. For them, it was called a seance. 
It was called theosophism. Um, but they were doing it. And ordinary people didn't know it. But suddenly everyone knew because of the Life magazine article. And inadvertently, Watson launched what has come to be known as the psychedelic revolution. Within 10 years, Life reported on LSD as a drug for psychiatric therapy that had gotten out of control. So something happened towards the middle of the previous century that has made us different. We are not the same. When, the, when history comes to rewrite our past century, it, it, will, it will be seen that what happened is as fundamental as what happened in the Renaissance in Italy, a major cultural event. <coughs> the popularization of mushrooms, this says marijuana, uh, proves safe. And there's Wilson, uh, Nixon uh, shredding it. Uh, it resulted in the eventual classification as controlled or prohibited substance in the United States and elsewhere around the globe. In the prohibition, they didn't even have the decency to call it cannabis, but they used the despicable common name of marijuana. This ushered in a profound uh, fundamental advance in modes of thinking. We're not the same, as I said before. About these other worlds... Um, beyond the film, uh, if you have the right perceptor, you can you can access them. We now know that the contact, contents of almost every book written, soon every book written, is already circulating in this room. And if you turn on your computer or cell phone, you access it. But if you don't have the computer, it's not there for you to see. So it influences what our future might be. Uh, I worked with Albert Hoffman, uh, as, long, as well as Gordon Wasson, and uh, shortly before his death, Albert wrote to uh, Steve Jobs, I understand from media accounts that you feel LSD helped you create uh, creatively in your development of Apple computers and your personal spiritual quest. I'm interested in learning more about how LSD was useful to you. Albert died before Jobs could uh, respond to him. Similarly, Francis Crick reported discovering DNA after an experience with LSD. And Carrie Mullis discovered the polymerase chain reaction with the aid of her. No, that's not possible. That has to be a hallucination. <laughs> Psychedelics, as McKenna said, uh, provide a totally different view of reality. People are so alienated from their souls that if they encountered it, they would think it came from outer space. <laughs> so this also ushered in, of course, the widespread uh, abuse of these sacred substances and uh, what we now face as our drug crisis. Um, it also, and I've been interested in this, uh, if the origin of um, religion um, can be traced back to a, an entheogenic uh, experience in, in a cave, perhaps, um, one way of, of verifying that is to see if new religions, which came about in the 20th century, had a similar uh, origin. And indeed, they did. Uh, Scientology, even though it is firmly anti-drug, 
evolved from um, drug experience. Uh, I've been able to track down Elron uh, Hubbard's associations, and uh, he was definitely involved with a group that meant to have seances in Maine in which they were ingesting Amanita muscaria mushroom. Similarly, if you look at the official hagiography of the Mormon Church, Joseph Smith, as everyone knows, the official story of the foundation of the church was out digging for hidden gold in the forest of New England, of, of, of the New World, actually it was Upper New York State, um, and uh, he uncovered plates engraved with a language he couldn't understand, but with the help of the angel Mormon, I'm not making this up, and magical spectacles, he was able to decipher it, and it turns out to be Egyptian, um, which he translated, and that's the Book of Mormon. The plates don't exist because after they were translated, the angel Mormon took them back again. The early, <laughs> what most people do not know is that digging for hidden treasure in the 19th century is a metaphor for digging up medicinal roots. He was digging up roots. Uh, he also had association with indigenous people, and they probably passed on to him knowledge that they had of the sacred use of things like the Amnita Muscaria. In the early years of the church, the Eucharist, um, every Sunday, with the uh, use of the, uh, of the Master's special elixir, the heavens routinely opened up, and the angels walked amongst them. After he died, the secret of the elixir went with him, and the Mormon church is firmly against drug use. I'm not saying drug use is good. I'm talking about entheogens. So um, I've been involved in tracking down our uh, history um, of the use of entheogens going back to the Paleolithic and in particular focusing on classical antiquity, but also then its further evolution into the cultures of Europe and Renaissance and medieval art. What is it? Um, so many people are talking about, well, it makes me feel good, it relieves my stress. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about knowing the truth. I'm talking about entering the world that you thought was myth and finding out that it's real. The antigen lets you see that what you thought was a myth is reality. And as a matter of fact, the, our contemporary interest in mythology came about from many people who were having this experience and needed a guidance for their experience. They were warned by classical scholars to keep their hands off of classical mythology. Watson gave a, a paper in the 1950s in which he suggested that the mystery at Eleusis may have involved a mushroom. And he was uh, advised by a friend, we have a letter saying, take an adv advice from an old friend, stick to your Mexican stuff and don't bother with classical mythology, <laughs> despite the fact that there's a myth in art that shows that the city of Mycenae was founded when the hero picked a mushroom at the site. So Albert discovered the hallucinogenic effects of LSD on his famous bicycle ride and reported it on the Swiss Pharmaceutical Journal. Actually, 
five years before he uh, discovered it. And this is where it becomes quite interesting. Um, entheogens seem to have a way of materializing. As I said, the mushroom is a mushroom. It's a, it's a cow and a bull and other things um, re related to it. I forgot to mention that when, <laughs> when Joseph Smith first saw gold plates, he was afraid, and this is the official hagiography, he was afraid to touch it. Do you know why? Because a giant toad was sitting on it. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, no one had paid any attention to uh, uh, Albert's discovery. But um, as I said, the plant seems to have a way of communicating with you. And so uh, Albert describes how he had uh, isolated LSD and left it on his laboratory shelf. Uh, he noticed at the time that the laboratory rats seemed ag agitated, but didn't seem to have any uh, usable, uh, saleable uh, uh, use. And so he left it aside. And as he walked by the shelf five years later, the substance called out to him and said, take me, take me. So um, Watson uh, after the death of his wife, shortly after the publication of Mushrooms, uh, Russia in History, she was sick throughout the 1950s. She had uh, a throat cancer, and as a physician, she knew that if she excised it, she would lose the ability to speak. So she chose not to have the operation, but to die. And she died, and Wasson uh, retired as a banker and went to the Orient, uh, his father was an Anglican bishop, and he had learned, um, who wrote a very perceptive, uh, perceptive book in the 1930s on um, uh, alcohol and God. <laughs> um, and he, in fact, um, brewed wine in his basement during Prohibition. But uh, he had learned from his father that there was a, a, a sacred substance identified as a deity, but not personified in the Vedic tradition, uh, called Soma. And uh, of interest is that its characteristics were a matter of, of uh, committed to, to, to memory, recorded in, in poems which were finally written down, but for a long time were handed on uh, uh, through oral uh, transmission. It was a, a, a plant that had no roots, that had no stem, they had no flower, they had no leaves. And Watson hypothesized that this must be a mushroom. And so he published this in Soma, The Divine Mushroom of Immortality. And many people were intrigued by the idea, but they said, if that is the case, we should find evidence of a similar. Um, the, the Vedic tradition is Indo-European, the people who migrated from Central Asian highlands into Afghanistan and into Europe and the Balkan Peninsula. If that is the case, uh, there should be evidence of a sacred mushroom in other places where they, they, they migrate. And of course, Celtic lore is filled with the fairy people who materialize from mushrooms, uh, the gnomes and so forth. But uh, he turned to me uh, to see if we could find evidence of it in classical mythology. And this is the event that, to some extent, destroyed my life because I've been ostracized for having the wrong idea. But we did publish this in The Road to Eleusis.
we demonstrated that the initiates were afforded a glimpse into a transcendent reality, something experienced by almost all the great figures of classical antiquity, as well as common people, regardless of sex or social class. The initiation hall is an architectural imitation of a cave. It's the cave experience, well known to you in the allegory of the cave, Plato. Um, but Plato didn't make up this, uh, this myth, this allegory. It goes back, as I said, at least to the Chauvet cave. From the cave, you experience transcendence through the walls of the cave to another dimension of reality. And what sort of thing did they see? Well, as I said, I'm not interested in your relieving your stress uh, or feeling good, um, but the evidence that I've been able to show is that people like Pythagoras had this kind of cave experience. And you know what he discovered? The ultimate mathematical perfection of the cosmos. I've been able to show that Euripides, was a tradition that he wrote his tragedies in a cave on the island of Salamis. I visited the cave with the archaeologist. He agrees with me. Um, we entered the cave. It is a dismal, ugly place in the life uh, in the fourth, fourth century, shortly after the death of Euripides, it was already identified as Euripides' cave. And contemporary with Euripides on the comic stage, he was associated with this cave. Um, it's not the place that you would write <laughs> anything. It's dark. It's in, it was in use since the Paleolithic as a sanctuary. It uh, has many caverns going deep in, 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 into the mountain. Uh, what he had there was the vision of his plays, which he then materialized as a writer in producing the plays. Thirty years later, when I returned to the subject to present a clear explanation incorporating many new discoveries made in the intervening years, I asked my Swiss colleague uh, before his death if he would provide a sentence if only a sentence in view of the fact that his health was failing. And he wrote, only a new Eleusis could help mankind to survive the threatening ca catastrophe in nature and human society and bring a new period of happiness. The wording is a bit awkward because English was not Albert's first language. So looking back at the end of the century, whose mentality he probably, more than anyone else, influenced. He saw the crisis that we humans have created by our destruction of our planet Gaia and the possible extinction of our species. Yeah, we got it wrong. Go back. We fucked up everything. So following Albert's suggestion, um, I am the leader of something called the Gaia Project, um, this is a bit funny, but anyway, we're planning to um, renegotiate our contract with planet Gaia and to make the ancient sanctuary of Eleusis the center for the study of our relationship to Gaia and, of course, all of the animate forms which we have not up to this point been able to recognize as sharing a right to live on this planet. I say it's a little bit funny because in May... I was in Alucina for a uh, convention, conference on health, art, and well-being. 
which is one of the things that I proposed originally for the Gaia project. Uh, this new museum complex is to be a center for conventions and and uh, art and, and, and uh, alternative medicine and things of that kind. And so this was my idea. Uh, and the, the guy who was running it uh, uh, insulted one of the fellow presenters and said she couldn't make her presentation unless she signed over all the rights to it. He made no mention of, of the Gaia project. So at that time, I said, okay, I'm finished. I'm, I'm withdrawing from the Friends of Alicina. And my Greek colleague said, you can't do that. He said, because you are the Gaia project. I'd been leading a parade and didn't look behind me to see if no one's following. So maybe we, we will be able to get someone in the parade behind me. Uh, the first thing is to make contact with the Minister of Culture. She does not want to meet me because what I do is dirty and it will probably uh, affect tourism, whereas what it would bring is prosperity to this devastated uh, the sanctuary. Anyway, um, so we'll have time to talk about things later, I hope. Thank you, Carl. Um, so we'll save questions for the panel discussion if anyone has any questions for Carl about his project. But uh, now we're going to move to Wendy Chapkiss, who's going to talk about what leads to our marijuana legalization efforts. You, you all can hear me fine without a mic, right? So uh, my entry into uh, this world of uh, drug legalization and entheogens uh, was through the very particular lens of the medical marijuana movement. In particular, I studied one really remarkable patient caregiver collective. It was actually one of the very first in the country. Uh, it was formed before marijuana was legal as a medicine in the state of California, which is where it was founded. And it also uh, certainly predated any of the other attempts to legalize marijuana. Uh, as a medicine. It was called the Women's Alliance for Medical Marijuana. It was actually composed of women and men, but most of the men were gay men living with and dying of AIDS, and they were all, yeah, wham, good. You know, it's a good acronym. We'll go with wham. Um, it was 200 people. 80% of them were living with terminal illness, as I said, mostly AIDS and uh, cancer. And what made it so unique was not just the, the depth, depth of suffering in the collective, but also the fact that they met that suffering by collectively growing their cannabis on the founder's land, Valerie Leperoni Corral and her then husband Michael Corral's land. They collectively turned it into medical products like capsules and tinctures and baked goods and, of course, bud. And then they redistributed the crop to the membership without charge. So it was an, uh, outside of the marketplace entirely as, a, as an organization. Um, I, I'm just going to read you a couple of really brief quotes from the book that I wrote about this organization. Uh, the first one is about my, my first experience when I went to a WAM meeting. I expected to walk into a room of people uh, in their 20s smoking pot. And this is what I found. Attending a WAM meeting is consciousness-altering, but not in the ways that new members typically expect. 
Patients often enter expecting a room thick with marijuana smoke, and instead they find a room filled with human suffering and a collectively organized attempt to alleviate it. In fact, no marijuana was smoked at WAM meetings. Rather, the hour and a half gathering was spent community building, sharing news about the needs of the organization and the needs of the membership. And news was often bad. Beloved members died. Important pieces of legislation were defeated. Donations were down. Announcements were made not only about volunteer opportunities to work in the garden or the office, but also about members needing hospital visits, visits, meals, or informal hospice support. Get well cards were circulated. Memorials were planned. Holiday parties were organized for those with a desire to socialize and celebrate. And information was exchanged about the practical dimensions of living with chronic or terminal illness and about coping with the often cascading challenges of pain, poverty, and social isolation. It was a really, really mind-blowing experience for me. Um, first of all, the room I walked into was full of much older people than I had anticipated. And when I thought about it, it was not that surprising, considering that these were people that were very ill. One of the most distinctive features of belonging to WAM was, in the words of one participant, the possibility of, quote, dying in the embrace of, in the embrace of friends. Because the majority of the members were living with life-threatening illness, death was a close companion. And for the most active members, it was a source of great social cohesion and simultaneously an almost unbearably painful aspect of collective life. One of the members I interviewed, Charles, said, I first came because I heard that this Mother Teresa was giving out the best medicinal marijuana in the fucking world, and I wanted to know what it was about. What I found was a collective. WAM has become the most unique group I've belonged to in my whole life. Sometimes it's hard for me because it's a place for the sick and dying, and I've pulled away from WAM these past few years because every time I've become close to someone, they've died. And I was like, fuck this, I'm not going to do this every time. But what WAM has done for me and what it's done for everybody that they've supplied is what nobody can do. Whether it's the marijuana or the tincture or Valerie just coming and sitting by your side, so many people have died, but at least they had someone sitting by their side. Valerie was uh, and is a, a truly, truly remarkable person. So for me, the lesson of the medical marijuana experience was community. It was not primarily about the drug. The drug was certainly a tool and an important one. It was why people were willing to put their safety and lives at risk and devote an enormous amount of energy for people who had very little. But it was really the community that was created. And I have to say, I, I urge all of us in the psychedelic legalization movement to put community front and center. Mm -hmm. Because um, actually the other night I went to the Boston Antheogenic Network storytelling night, and I felt like I was in a WAM meeting. I mean, there were people who were desperately needing to share their stories and people who were willing to create space to hold those stories and to, uh, and to accept them, to gather them. That is really going to be crucial, especially as we now move from movement to industry. Mm. And so what I, and I would love to just read and read and read from the voices of the people in my book, but what I think I want to use my very precious time for is to tell you some of the other lessons that I've learned in 20 years of looking at marijuana legalization that are warning signs for the psychedelic movement. And I want us to take those to heart so that we don't repeat the same mistakes and that we're prepared for some of the challenges 
that are ahead for those of us who are working toward the end of prohibition of these really valuable substances. Okay, so first lesson. But, yeah, not yet, but soon. <laughs> um, that um, botanicals are going to present a special problem in terms of uh, psychedelic drug legalization. Based on the experience that um, I've witnessed in terms of trying to get cannabis approved as a medicine, I think I can safely say that ayahuasca, psilocybin mushrooms, peyote, the botanicals are going to have a very different road to establishing legitimacy than uh, MDMA or even LSD or synthetic uh, uh, psych psychoactive drugs. And this is largely because botanicals are not defined as real or legitimate medicine in our culture. And it has very little to do with the far oh, now change the slide. It has very little to do with the pharma pharmacological differences between plants and synthetic drugs and much more to do with the professionalization of medicine in the US. Um, in the 19th century, and I talk about this in, in Dying to Get High, uh, self-defined regular doctors, I actually call themselves regular doctors, who were men, distinguished themselves from root and herb practitioners, many of whom were women, through the use of stronger and more toxic drugs. And the sidelining of what have been uh, now labeled crude botanicals in, the fa in favor of single compound synthetic pharmaceuticals has reverberated throughout the contemporary debates over the medical use of marijuana. For example, about a decade ago, the then uh, assistant deputy drug czar Andrea Barthwell told a congressional committee investigating the possible medical uses of cannabis that cannabis should not be considered a real medicine because, quote, it's not just a single drug. It contains more than 400 chemicals, unquote. Furthermore, she argued that the delivery system was too primitive to be a medicine. According to Bolkoff, there's nothing that tells us from the science now that a smoked crude botanical should be a medication. As I discuss in Dying to Get High, in order to understand why some drugs, but not all, are labeled medicine, and why some healers, but not others, are regular doctors, it's important to ask who beside the patient might benefit from such distinctions. Mm. And in a culture of largely for-profit medicine and pharmaceutical control of drugs, benefit is often defined in the most narrowly monetary and proprietary terms. The medical marijuana movement itself has really struggled over whether the path to profit is the best way to legitimate the drug and to make it available to uh, the, the population at large. Currently, the most common form of legal medical marijuana provision is through commercial dispensaries. Some serve a few hundred patients, others serve hundreds of thousands of patients. Harborside Dispensary in Oakland, California, for instance, has an annual revenue of $25 million and serves more than 200,000 members. As the numbers suggest, the dispensary system is efficient in serving large numbers of patients, but that kind of model has its limitations. And when we think about the legalization of therapeutic psychoactive drugs of all kinds, I think we need to be a little cautious about assuming that the marketplace is the way to go. Because even with the uh, preservation of the Affordable Care Act, at least for the time being, there are still millions of Americans who don't have any access to health insurance. And for those of us who are lucky enough to have coverage, 
botanicals are almost always excluded. And in a discussion of marijuana access for patients, one of the patients I interviewed, Sherry Paris, challenged the idea that simply working for legalization through a for-profit model was an adequate goal. She said, if I'm a sick person and my finances are being destroyed, and believe me, that's what happens to sick people in this country, I need a different model of medical marijuana than dispensaries because, of course, they're not interested in people who can't buy their product. But the point is, most people couldn't survive a life-threatening or terminal diagnosis economically, even if they somehow managed to survive it physically. It brings up the underlying issue of the failure of marijuana reform to look at the issues of poverty and illness in any significant way. The question, in other words, of access is going to be a crucial one for psychedelic medicines as well. I think we need to be asking ourselves whether the corporate equivalent of dispensaries, that is pharmacies and the pharmaceutical industry, should be the only portal through which individuals are legally able to access psychoactive substances, especially botanicals. Certainly, it's an important avenue to pursue, but it's been very useful within the cannabis movement that we have fought to retain the right of individual cultivation, which is unevenly distributed across medical marijuana states. And I think it's something we should really consider when we think about psychoactive botanicals of other sorts as well. You can advance. Um, as I said, uh, oh, you can advance. As I said, WAM does this form of collective cultivation, and they talk, and you can see this in the interviews in the book, about how therapeutic it was for people to grow their own medicine, to be in the garden. They also made very inexpensive forms of medicines. You can see they're making capsules here using chopsticks to stick the, um, the, the cooked cannabis into the, into the capsules. Uh, made, made it possible to give them away free of charge and to support the organization through donations. You can imagine that removing profit from medicine hasn't been uniformly embraced, though, especially by the pharmaceutical industry. In fact, Big Pharma's response to marijuana legalization suggests that they see it as a threat and have responded in ways that are intended to shore up a vision of corporate control because their bottom line may depend on it. Uh, marijuana's biggest enemy is not Jeff Sessions, says Esquire. It's Big Pharma. In 2011, Investor Place News asked, could legal pot give Big Pharma a much-needed boost? And the story points out that medical marijuana sales in 2011 had already breached the $2 billion mark in states where it was legal. And Investor Place observes, if the U.S. federal government ever legalizes marijuana, sales would probably make the $11 billion Pfizer ranked in on Lipitor worldwide look like chump change. The question, though, is whether those dollars can be captured by Big Pharma, and that's far from certain. Even more troubling from the perspective of pharmaceutical CEOs is the fact that psychoactive botanicals like cannabis are beginning to replace existing pharmaceutical drugs through some key conditions. For example, in medical marijuana states, prescriptions for painkillers and antidepressants have fallen sharply compared to states without medical marijuana laws. People are using the botanical rather than the pharmaceutical. Americans are eager for access to less toxic, more natural medicines. More than a third of us already make use of some form of what's called complementary or alternative medicine, with botanical medicines being the most common. 
And the response by Big Pharma has involved not only efforts to create synthetic versions of promising botanicals, but also, in the case of cannabis at least, to directly fund the opposition to the plant's legalization. For example, in 2016, the pharmaceutical company Insys Therapeutics was the largest financial backer of opposition to marijuana legalization in the state of Arizona. And a year later, after the defeat of the Arizona legalization measure, it was crystal clear why, when Insist secured federal approval to market their new synthetic pharmaceutical cannabinoid drug, Syndros. From the perspective of the pharmaceutical industry, then, botanical, uh, psychoactive botanicals are competition unless they can be harnessed as pharmaceutical drugs. So an important lesson for those of us thinking about and working toward the legalization of psychoactive drugs is not only who will benefit, but who will control access. And I believe this can only be answered ethically if we put really uncomfortable questions of social inequalities at the heart of our conversations and our strategies. Class inequality and the terrible American healthcare system is a key problem. But other forms of social inequality also have to be moved front and center in our drug reform movements. For instance, race. As you probably know, the war on drugs has disproportionately been a war on people of color, with African Americans incarcerated at a rate of more than five times that of European Americans. It's disturbing, then, to realize that successful marijuana legalization efforts are reproducing rather than challenging racial inequalities. For example, a Colorado Health Department report showed that in the first two years of full legalization in that state, arrest rates for marijuana possession among Latino teenagers rose more than 20%, and for black teenagers it rose more than 50%. Meanwhile, white teenagers' uh, arrest rates fell by nearly 10%, and this is despite a similar pattern of use. Not only are racial minorities still being swept up into the criminal justice system despite marijuana legalization, they're also being excluded from the green rush that is accompanying legalization. Recently in Maryland, the Legislative Black Caucus in that state demanded the disbanding of the Maryland Medical Cannabis Commission because none of the 15 cultivation licenses went to firms owned by African Americans. And there's only a tiny portion, about 1% I've read, of the more than 3,000 legal storefront marijuana dispensaries in the U.S. that are African-American owned. Overall in the industry, there's only about 4% participation of any uh, business that is uh, marijuana-related that is black-owned. And again, given the disproportionate punishment of black Americans for drug-related activities under prohibition, this failure to address that problem as we move into legalization is particularly disturbing to me. I know that other psychoactive drugs like ayahuasca or peyote will have different but not entirely unrelated race problems. Most notably for those botanicals, I would say that it's the question of colonization and cultural appropriation. As first world people like us, white people predominantly begin to embrace plant medicines that have been cultivated and historically used by indigenous peoples, we need to make sure that we're not replicating uh, relations of colonial dominance.
there are efforts to combat this unthinking white perspective. Um, for instance, at the recent psychedelic science conference that I went to in Oakland, Dr. Villalabate was um, asked or was given the opportunity to organize a plant medicine track. And it was in that track that you heard voices of people of color and women uh, in a conference that otherwise was predominantly male and white. The plant medicine track had sessions on topics like the indigenous perspectives on peyote's healing, uh, ayahuasca's practices as intangible cultural heritage and others. And we need to do more of that. We need to center, not marginalize the perspectives of people of color in our movement. Where in this weekend has there been a person of color who's given a presentation? Thankfully, there are a few of us, you know, who are speaking to that issue, but we need to do better. We really need to do better. And please do not follow the model of marijuana legalization in that regard. Uh, it's been dismal. Uh, organizers of the Cannabis World Congress and Business Exposition that is happening now and over the next few weeks in different cities initially invited as their keynote speaker a key Trump ally, Roger Stone. And it was only after a boycott, he's being invited in the next one, uh, after a boycott of the events was launched by activists concerned about Stone's long history of racist and sexist comments, was he finally disinvited. But who in the world thought it was a good idea to invite Roger Stone in the first place? I mean, the invitation is evidence in itself that casual bigotry is unremarkable to some in our movement, or at least in the industry side of what was a movement. Misogyny, too, is uh, too often overlooked in our movement. And I want to end with a bit of a discussion of gender, not only because I'm a woman, but because I'm acutely, um, and I'm acutely sensitive to that subject, but also because most of my research has been in the area of gender and sexuality studies. In fact, it was only about 20 years ago that I moved from studying sex and gender. My last book before Dying to Get High was um, called Life, Sex, Sex, Women Performing Erotic Labor, and it was about prostitution legalization. So I seem to have made this enormous jump to a completely uh, unrelated field in part because I, um, I was living at ground zero of the unfolding of the medical marijuana movement in Santa Cruz, California, where WAM was founded. And I was watching it unfold in front of me. And as a sociologist, it was absolutely irresistible to want to study what was going on. I also had really good access to the community there because I knew Valerie and Michael Corral. Uh, but I was worried. I thought, I'm going to have to learn a whole new literature. This is going to be a completely new field. And what I discovered was that despite, uh, despite turning my attention from sex to drugs, I was still studying something that was very comparable, um, vice crime. Oops. Uh, as I began reading and taking notes about from the drug policy literature, I also began to see uh, um, the parallels between how drugs and sex are understood in our culture. Both illicit sex and illicit drug use, oops, no bad, sorry. Both illicit sex, there we go. Both illicit sex and illicit drug use are considered moral violations. And efforts to discourage participation rely heavily on shame and marginalization. Under practices of prohibition, criminalizing and punishing prostitutes, 
and drug users are actions that are ostensibly taken for the participant's own good. And these practices are prohibited, in other words, because they're not only defined as wrong morally, but also because they are understood, quite rightly, to be risky. And while risk could be reduced, policies, in fact, do not try to reduce harm. Policies instead are often enacted that ensure that sex and drugs remain as dangerous as possible. For instance, refusing to fund needle exchange programs or seizing condoms as evidence of prostitution or even fighting, as they've been doing in the state I live in, broad-based provision of Narcan to help um, prevent death from overdoses. And these strategies are justified on the grounds that reducing risk through deliberate social policy would encourage bad behavior uh, well, if you can pass policies that enhance risk, it might dissuade people who would otherwise be intent, would otherwise be tempted to get involved in these practices. In addition to a striking familiarity in the arguments that I found to prohibit both illicit sex and illicit drugs, um, I also quickly learned that moving from prostitution reform to drug reform was uh, only leaving one gender and sexuality saturated environment into another. So when I saw this in the West Coast Leaf, which is a marijuana um, reform magazine in the West, the West Coast, um, I thought, as I looked at the article, that it was going to be about the problem that when we think of allies, it's a whole bunch of white men wearing suits. No, that was absolutely not what the article was about. It was just about how you know we had to make allies and it was going to be important to the future of the movement. And I thought, that is the unthinking uh, racism and sexism. That it's just, it's not conscious, it's not intended, it's just sort of the water that the movement swims through. So it was a real culture shock to me as I moved from gender and sexuality studies conferences that were populated by women of all races, uh, queers of all genders, and moved into the world of drug policy reform gatherings that were mostly men, mostly white, and a strong heterosexual presumption. I discovered that all of the major drug policy reform organizations in the U.S., with the exception of those focused on medical marijuana, and I'll come back to that in a sec, were firmly in the hands of men. There was Ethan Nadelman at the head of the Drug Policy Alliance, Rick Doblin running Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, Alan St. Pierre at Normal, Rob Campia at the Marijuana Policy Project. And I think with the notable exception of the DPA, that continues to be true. I should also say as an aside that the DPA and MAPS have the best reputations around gender issues of any of those organizations. But still, it was not um, unremarkable to me that they were all headed, founded by and headed by men. <laughs> the organizations that were associated with marijuana were particularly bad. Uh, it might be an artifact of adolescent stoner culture. I don't know. But when you think about high times, think about the depiction of women in those pages. As one observer commented, it runs photographs and advertisements featuring scantily clad young women along crystalline buds photographed like buxom starlets. <laughs> in 2010, this problem of libertine sexism within marijuana culture and cannabis reform exploded onto the front pages of the American press when seven senior members of the Marijuana Policy Project resigned over the director's pattern of inappropriate sexual contact with female subordinates. And the, the episode temporarily led to some soul-searching among men within the marijuana reform movement. 
On a segment of the normal podcast, The Week of the Resignation, Steve Bloom of Celebrity Stoner, for, exa- for example, observed, quote, there aren't a lot of women in leadership positions. It's, it's all guys. And the marijuana world has a reputation of being a bit of a guys club. The discovery that the marijuana world was a bit of a guys club was shocking to me, both because I was a woman and I had a long history of enthusiastic marijuana use, and my world, my, my actual grassroots community, was not dominated by men. Uh, and also because my research was on medical marijuana, which is a feminized industry. Uh, while men are largely in power within national drug policy reform organizations, women started many of the early medical marijuana organizations. For instance, Steph Shearer of Americans for Safe Access, Debbie Goldsberry of the patient, Berkeley Patients Group, Valerie Leveroni Corral of WHAM. Um, so it... It was a shock to me to learn that the broader drug policy reform movement did not reflect that. But when I thought about it, it didn't surprise me that much that the part of the industry that dealt with wiping people's butts and providing them free cannabis uh, was run by women who are, you know, socialized to be caretakers and so forth and self-sacrificing in a whole bunch of ways. And that the um, kind of pleasure part of the industry was... um, was dominated by men. So for me, the face of marijuana reform was not the woman with a couple of carefully placed buds covering up her genitals, but rather this. This was WAM member Kathy, and this is what women look like to me who are in the, uh, the marijuana reform movement. I think it's an encouraging sign that I was invited to speak here today, and I think that says something about an effort by some within the psychedelic science and psychedelic drug reform movement to not allow an entire weekend to go by with only men. Because had I not been invited to speak, it would have been only men. And this is not the first time this has happened to me. I am often the person brought in to be the person who won't be the man on the panel. That's not good enough. We have to do better. And I can, like Mitt Romney, I have binders full of women. <laughs> I can tell you who to invite this and invite them. It's re- you know, it is important we have that diversity. And again, as I said, where are the people of color? There are, again, people of color who do this work and should be front and center as we talk about these substances. Because if we don't do that, if we don't take class and gender and race and sexuality, seriously. We're going to leave those core problems of social inequality firmly in place within our movements and within the society that we're trying to transform. And that would be such a loss because entheogens, psychedelics, are all about revolutionary transformation. Uh, This was the sign over the Wham Garden, love grows here. And that's, I think, again, moving away from thinking in terms of industry, think in terms of what are the qualities that these drugs bring out in us that we want to cultivate, love and community being primary among them. Do the last slide, and thank you.
You ready? Welcome to the final talk of uh, a trip through a trip to the past, Boston psychedelic history. Um, it's it's an honor to be here with everyone. Um, I'm going to introduce Rick Doblin. Um, he is the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Kind of a mouthful, but I think that was intentional. Um, he received his doctorate in uh, public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government where he wrote his dissertation on the regulation of the medical uses of psychedelics and marijuana and his master thesis on a survey of oncologists about smoked marijuana versus the oral THC pill and nausea control for cancer patients. His undergraduate thesis of uh, New College of Florida was a 25-year follow-up of the classic Good Friday experiment, which evaluated the potential of psychedelic drugs to catalyze the religious experiences. Thank you very much, Bill, for the tour yesterday and Don as well, but like Marsh Chapel is a beautiful place, I must say. Um, he also conducted a 34-year follow-up study to the Timothy Leary's Concrete Prison Experiment. Rick studied with Dr. Stanislav Grob and was among the first to be certified as a holotropic breathwork practitioner. His professional goal is to help develop legal context for the beneficial uses of psychedelics and marijuana, primarily as prescription medicines, but also for personal growth and otherwise healthy people, and eventually to become a legally licensed psychedelic therapist. He founded MAPS in 1986 and currently resides in Boston with his wife and one of three children, two are in college. And so, like, I feel like, you know, like, the, the, like when you tried to find a visionary, like, foresight might be one of the words in that definition. And to my knowledge, Rick, uh, you know, had the uh, vision of becoming a psychedelic therapist a long time before MAPS was a thing. And, you know, I, I just, you know, personally got involved in this work through Students for Sensible Drug Policy, so I want to thank Students for Sensible Drug Policy for helping us. Um, you know, and like, that like, kind of led me into this world of, of psychedelic community that's just so beautiful. And you know, I've kind of been called uh, to, to um, offer a proverb that is a mantra that I personally have used in times of darkness, and I offer it to you. Um, and if you need a reminder, come to me later. But it's, uh, you know, May the long time sunshine upon you, and all love surround you, and the pure light within guide your way home. Um, thank you very much. Um, basically, I just want to be Bill when I grow up. <laughs> if I grow up. <laughs> um, and, and Linda, I just wanted to comment that um, I think one of the things that um, gives MAPS a little bit of... Um, uh, sort of gender equality in a sense is the male-female co-therapist teams and I think that's kind of a fundamental uh, reason for why I think we've been so successful in the therapy and why it feels kind of balanced and the other part is that even though we have five white males as on the board of MAPS the, the benefit corporation is run all by women so much so that I've been saying that um, they better start hiring some men or else we're going to accuse them of <laughs> gender inequality. Um, so I think the um, we, we actually did have a board meeting too where we asked if people, women felt underrepresented in the dialogues. So the way we run the board meetings is anybody can talk, even though just the boards. But And I think there may be something about this um, level of um, conflict and risk. I know this is kind of a this is not what I meant to talk about, but I'd just say that the um, the fact that, like, Rob Campia was arrested, I've had challenges with the law, 
that I think a lot of the males who founded organizations were um, more comfortable, I guess, with direct conflict. I, I don't know if that's, you know, it just seems that there's um, been a, um, a, a certain kind of risk tolerance that comes with privilege, that if you have certain kind of privileges, you feel like you can challenge the system in a way. So, uh, well, that's just about, about that dream. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. That's, that's right. So, what I'm going to talk about. So, I'm going to talk briefly about the um, the past, and then um, last night I realized that um, I should add something about the future as well. So, I'm going to talk a bit about the Good Friday experiment and about the Concord Prison experiment. Not so much about what they were, but what the lessons are for moving forward, and then also um, where we're at and how we think psychedelic uh, research will move forward in the future. So, uh, you know, the Good Friday experiment was um, Walter Pankey, who was uh, the student faculty advisor of Timothy Leary. And I'd say the um, modified replication was done by Roland and Bill, uh, with the fundamental difference between being that um, the modern studies have been on individuals and not in groups, and they've been in clinical settings, not in religious settings. But even still, they've demonstrated the same thing, that you can have a um, fairly reliable catalyzing effect on mystical experiences with psilocybin, even outside religious context, even with outside people who are in the religious professions. Um, Walter Houston Clark, there are no experiments known to me in the history of the scientific study of religion better designed or clear in their conclusions than this one. And I think this was really the one that inspired a lot of the early psychedelic researchers because embedded in this whole study is the uh, theory of change in a sense about why psychedelics need to be integrated into our society that this mystical experience carries certain that the unitive aspect of the mystical experience has political implications and I think this goes a long way to explain what happened in the 60s and why it's so important that we integrate psychedelics um, into the future so the, the essence of the experiment though is 20 subjects uh, divinity students all male from Andover Newton Theological uh, Seminary that they were, is a controlled study, half got placebo, half got uh, the psilocybin. Their groups were um, were matched. It was a randomized study. It was double-blind, although it didn't really stay double-blind, but it was intended to be double-blind. Um, there was an active placebo, which wasn't really effective, the nicotinic acid, and, but it fooled people initially. Um, but it all fell apart. Um, when they started sharing their stories with each other and when they started watching what was going on to others in the chapel. Um, there were both self-report questionnaires and independent raiders, family members, others. So that's the, here it was at the Mars Chapel, for those of you that weren't on the walk. Um, this is the uh, downstairs. Th this is what I want to show here. This is amazing. When I actually went to um, check it out, this is the inscription on the top of the door going into the main chapel. The experiment took place below, but per the inscription, let me just uh, read it to you. You can't really see it. It's, uh, let this chapel at the center of the university campus signify forever the centrality both of intellectual and experimental religion in education and also of devotion to God's righteous rule in human lives by Daniel Marsh. So the experimental religion and I believe that inscription was there before the Good Friday experiment. And so, what are they talking about? I mean, that's so progressive, this idea of experimental religion. 
So, um, and this is the basement chapel with me pretending to give a <laughs> sermon, <laughs> uh, imagining what it was like at the time. Um, so, you've probably been through this. This is very quick. The six criteria of a mystical experience. Um, Key one, sense of unity, internal and external. This is what I think gives a lot of the political implications of this transcendence of time and space. Uh, the sense of sacredness. This I chose because you have uh, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish all in the same place. Um, this sense of objective reality. There's something fundamentally that uh, feels true about it. Uh, deeply felt positive mood. And um, ineffability. Sort of that you can't really describe it or conceive of it or MC Escher. Um, so the conclusion was that the uh, persons who received psilocybin experienced to a greater extent than did the controls, the phenomena described by our typology of mysticism. Nine out of the 20 participants met the criteria for a mystical experience. Eight of those nine had psilocybin. Um, I did manage to interview the one uh, placebo subject who actually had a mystical experience too. And one of the things he said was that uh, it was just seeing what was happening to his fellows so much that inspired him as well. Um, there was a six-month follow-up after an admittedly short follow-up period of only six months. Life-enhancing and enriching effects, similar to some of those claimed by mystics, were shown by the higher scores of the experimental subjects when compared to the controls. And then tragically, uh, Walter Pankey, you know, died in 71 in a scuba diving accident. And I'm you know, convinced that he would have done um, a longer-term follow-up, because in the key, the key aspect in the mystical literature is what are the fruits of the experience. It's not so much what is the experience, but what are the fruits, and you can only tell that with long periods of time. So I did a um, in the middle '80s when I started needing to do a thesis um, for college, uh, and I wanted to do psychedelic research. I, I realized it was at a time when it was impossible to get permission to actually administer psychedelics. But doing a long-term follow-up, in a sense, it was, um, at least to this experiment, was even more important because it's really now having people reflect back and talk about what were the fruits. And so I was able to do this legally, and I was able to persuade my parents that this was a good thing that they should fund. So I, I went all over the country, and I, I became a little bit of a junior detective and identified 19 out of the 20 of the people actually, and without the help of Andover Newton, they refused to help. Um, they didn't even have Walter Pankey's dissertation in the library <laughs> at Andover Newton. And it was only like searching through their library that I discovered a list of alumni of all the students who were um, in school at the time of the experiment with their addresses. And this was like a 10-year-old um, document, but I just mailed to everybody, and that's how eventually I started finding people. Um, and the scores here, just to show you, this um, is the six-month follow-up. These are the scores for the mystical experience, the experimentals, and the controls. 60% or over means a full mystical experience. And so these are the results that I got from the long-term follow-up. So you can see that they're almost identical. That people after um, 24 years, and what's important to say here is that this was during the Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan escalation of the drug war. And so if ever there was a time where people would be pressured to deny the validity of a prior psychedelic experience, it was during the time of the follow-up. And so people did not do that. They affirmed the validity. And so the fundamental um, 
conclusion of this study was upheld, that this psilocybin under these conditions with groups who are religiously inclined in a religious setting, uh, it really does facilitate a mystical experience by the definition that was uh, used and codified in the experimental questionnaire. So in the follow-up, though, people talked about how it increased their depth of faith and increased their appreciation of eternal life, this is the transcendence of time and space. It recognized the arbitrariness of ego boundaries, sort of the ego dissolution of the psilocybin, deepened the sense of the meaning of Christ. It reaffirmed their faith in certain ways, it heightened their sense of joy and beauty, and it resolved career decisions for some of them. So these were um, sort of spiritualized, but this was what I was even a little bit more interested in is what does that mean for um, the society as a whole? And then also, how do we start understanding the role of psychedelics in the 60s and the way in which psychedelics were linked with the anti-war movement, with uh, the genesis, in many cases, of the environmental movement? A lot. How, how do we understand the political nature of why psychedelics were involved with so many um, causes, but also were squashed. And so people talked about this increased tolerance of other religions, their deepened equanimity in the face of difficult life crises, this greater solidarity and identification with foreign peoples, minorities, genders, and nature, and reduced fear of death. That reduced fear of death, um, I think, helps people be more politically active. And then this greater solidarity and identification sort of helps understand that we're really all together and that these are underneath all the differences, we're more similar. So this aspect of the mystical experience and social justice was um, prominent in, in what the reports were that people were telling me. One person, uh, I remain convinced that my ability to perceive things was artificially changed, but the perceptions were real as anything else. Uh, this was my fit. We took such an infinitesimal amount of psilocybin and yet it connected me to infinity. Um, now, there's been some more modern research based at Hopkins and um, the next one slide, not yet, but um, at Imperial College that have sort of, in modern times, experimentally confirmed the some of the, the hopes and dreams of those of us who thought psychedelics could be an agent of change. So this was a study that showed that uh, the mystical experience occasioned by hallucinogen psilocybin led to increase in the personality domain of openness. And personality is not <coughs> thought to change much over time. And so the fact that you could have these experiences and make you um, feel more uh, open-minded um, was really a terrific finding. And we have similar findings for MDMA as well. Um, really, and we use the same measure. And this was something that just came out. There's been some uh, discussion as far as whether this uh, study should even take place, whether they should be suppressed, because what they're talking about is that um, this was at Imperial College. Ego dissolution experienced during a participant's most intense psychedelic experience positively predicted liberal political views, openness, and nature-relatedness, and negatively predicted authoritarian political views. So this was the psilocybin work that was done by Robin Carhart Harris. So I think that with science, um, we constantly are saying that we need honest drug education, that we can't really um, rely on negatively twisted or positively twisted education. So I think we have to look at this area. I think it's appropriate to mention it, whether this is going to make authoritarian politicians try to squash psychedelic research is the concern. Um, I don't see that happening. I don't know that they're going to be uh, reading the journal of psychoactive drugs. But, but it's, it's a concern about, you know, 
acknowledging this is the theory of social change, and this is starting to be experimentally confirmed in uh, more modern psychedelic research. Um, Reverend Howard Thurman was the uh, chaplain. He was Martin Luther King's mentor. Martin Luther King got a PhD at Boston University. He was an incredible preacher. And there's something that I discovered during the follow-up that I think is uh, very crucial. And um, I'm just going to play a minute or so of the actual sermon from Good Friday. When I went to um, interview uh, Eva Pankey, um, she had these tapes from the original sermon. So we can play this. They shall die. But that is all that I shall do for death. I am not on death's payroll. I will not tell him the whereabouts of my friends or of my enemies either. Though he promised me much, I will not map him the route to any man's door. Am I a spy in the land of the living? that I should deliver men to death. Brothers, the password and the plans of our city are safe with me. Never through me shall you be overcome. I shall die but that is all that I shall do. For death, I am not on death's payroll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can imagine, uh, even without drugs, if you uh, <laughs> listen to uh, several hours of Bernard Howard Thurman, you could easily have a mystical experience. <laughs> Um, he went on to talk about how it was people's obligation to tell um, other people that there was a man on the cross, that this was um, sort of a mythic historical thing, and that it was our obligation to talk about through the death-rebirth process. Um, but what I discovered is, uh, during these interviews, that one of the subjects was so taken by what Howard Thurman said about that there was... Um, this obligation to tell people that there was a man on the cross, that this fellow um, actually decided during the ceremony that he needed to do that. And he thought, if I am going to tell somebody, I might as well tell the president. And um, since the president is in Washington, I might as well tell the president of the university. (laughs) And so he ran out of the chapel, and he went out on Commonwealth Ave, and um, Houston Smith and Timothy Leary had to go after him to try to protect him from traffic. Um, and then when they caught him, he didn't want to go back in the chapel. Um, it was beautiful outside. This is a basement chapel. He was, you know, on a mission. Um, and so they felt that they needed to um, bring him back in, that this was not the conditions of the experiment. So they um, tranquilized him with a shot of Thorazine. And this is a picture of, you know, Alice uh, with a gun, you know, shooting the white rabbit. <laughs> That's what Thorazine does for you. But this was um, completely omitted from the experimental records. And so what we're having here is this sense that science, which is sacred, is being um, 
not fully honored, I think, in the sense that you really need to report both the benefits and the risks, mm -hmm. and that the fact that you tranquilize somebody, if we were to tranquilize somebody in our MDMA research or modern psilocybin research and not mention that, that would be a major, major problem. And you could get the study shut down for stuff like that, that, that you're really not reporting the serious adverse events that you need to be reporting. So I think this was a really surprise for me to discover this. Um, and it, it leads to a general kind of thing. Several other people said that uh, the struggles were underemphasized, not just this person that was tranquilized, but one said, the other thing I found unique that wasn't talked about in what I read, at least in the thesis, was that it was all on the positive side. I had a downside. It was a roller coaster. A very strong positive sense of the whole, one with humanity, unity kind of feeling. And then I went down to the bottom where I was really just guilt. It was a very, very profound sense of guilt. So what we're seeing, I think, is an overestimation of the positive and an underreporting of the challenges, which I think... Uh, produced a lot of people who were willing to experiment but were unprepared for the depth of the psychological material that they were going to confront. And in terms of this social reaction, one of the placebo participants said, the only change that I can think of that it brought about in my life was a conviction that I never wanted to go on a drug trip of any kind, ever. And I never have, except for booze. The sights I saw were very disturbing to me, and I didn't see myself wanting to be in that kind of position. It appeared to be hopelessly out of control and life-threatening in several instances. So even in the Good Friday experiment, we're starting to see how the culture could be, become polarized. And so um, I asked people, too, about whether they had had non-drug-related mystical experiences in their lives. And many people said that the mystical experience from the Good Friday experience catalyzed other experiences in their life later on. And they generally said that they preferred the non-drug mystical experiences to the drug mystical experiences. But the reason was because of the intensity, that the intensity of the psilocybin was really strong and there was this roller coaster effect. And their non-drug mystical experiences were more positive and more integrated. And so they preferred them. They, they wouldn't do without the psilocybin, but when, it, when you've integrated and it sort of happens in nature or making love or somehow in, in prayer or just the gratuitous grace that just feels more um, uniformly positive. And so I, I'd say that the lessons from the Good Friday Experiment for what we're doing today are this importance of balance, that we really cannot underemphasize the risks. It's self-defeating, unethical, and contribute to social backlash. And I see um, one of the critiques I think you could make of, of the promotion that Timothy Leary did was that he really talked about it in much more positive ways and one dose you're enlightened and it didn't really talk about death. The other that implication is that psychedelics can catalyze spiritual experiences that have social justice implications, potential to change the world when masses of people have these experiences and that the key work is this integrating psychedelics into society, not through declaring counterculture or leaving to go somewhere else. There's no island. Aldous Huxley realized that in his book, Island, where it was this paradise society, and he changed the way he was writing this book as he was writing it to have the island destroyed by the larger culture at the end of the book. And so this means to me that we need to go into the heart of the culture and become mainstream and abandon the, the romance of the counterculture concept. So the other thing that um, 
the other main experiment that was done at Harvard was the Concord Prison Experiment. And I had um, published a paper about the Good Friday Experiment, and Alex Beam, who's a columnist, had written a paper about uh, an op-ed column about it in Boston Globe. And I got a, con a contact shortly after that from somebody that worked in the prison system, Massachusetts Department of Corrections, and he said he had access to the files of the people that were in the Concord Prison Experiment. Because in all of the writings and with him, the names of the people were lost. There were no documents. There was no information about how could you do a long-term follow-up to Concord Prison when we had no idea who was in the study. And then I get this call from somebody, Michael Forcier, saying, I want to help you. We've got this file, uh, files of our famous prisoners. Um, uh, Malcolm X was one of the prisoners in Massachusetts Department of Corrections. They had his files. They had a bunch of files. It took us a year to get permission, went all the way up to the governor's office. And on the final piece of the paper that, that the governor signed that, that said we could do this follow-up, but we could get access, they put, no administration of psilocybin. <laughs> like, of course, we'd never even mentioned that. We're just wanting to, they just want to make sure you're, we're, you know, you know, confused that this is a, a um, permission to actually give anybody psilocybin. All right, so this was 32 subjects. These were all prisoners. Uh, near to uh, their release. They had historical controls, a base rate of um, recidivism rates from people in the several years before the study took place. It wasn't blinded. Um, there were two psilocybin sessions that people got. There was group therapy. Um, there was preparation and integration, and the outcomes were based on recidivism rates. Because what Tim Leary said, I think very wisely, was that when you talk about mystical experiences, it's about people reporting what happened to them. It's a self-report. You don't know. It's not, quote, objective in the same way that you can look at recidivism rates and you can say um, they either went back to jail or they didn't. And so he thought this would be a more persuasive way to communicate to people the value of psilocybin, and also it would... Um, address a real major social concern about revolving door between people in prison and then how do they, you know, create a new life outside without going back. So th this was, I think, a, a brilliant concept for an experiment. His um, conclusions were um, initially, um, the main conclusion can be stated as follows, one and one half years after termination of the program, the rate of new crimes has been reduced and they originally said the recidivism was 32% compared to 50% base rate. So this was the original findings, and it, it seemed like this was a tremendous success. Um, they did a follow-up later, and they found, oh, no, the recidivism rates are now the same. But what they said was, what Leary said was, the majority of the group, experimental group, were reported to have been returned on parole violations, not new crimes. And what they hypothesized was that the parole officers knew who was in this experiment, and they were monitoring the people who were in this experiment much more closely than others because there was growing controversy about psilocybin and psychedelics in society. And so these people were um, violated their parole for minor things and went back to prison for parole violations, not new crimes. So this was the way in which Leary tried to say that even though at this point, the recidivism rates were similar, that the cause of the recidivism was different. And so he still considered this to be a success. Um, 
And the further he got from the time of the experiment, the better the experiment started looking, the way he was reporting it. So in his autobiography, he said, we kept twice as many convicts out on the street as the expected number. This was from a 1990 conference for MAPS, uh, where um, I asked him, um, with all your experience, uh, you know, working on research and working with psychedelics, do you have any advice for us on how to work with the government and how to move forward. And he said, fuck the government. <laughs> he said, I'm so far past asking for permission for anything, but I'm glad you're trying. <laughs> and that's what led to that. So um, my follow-up really uh, did not confirm the results of the original experiment. And what, um, what I found, it took me a while to figure this out, um, but it turned out that of those people, this is sort of like how you sort of technically tell yourself you're being scientifically accurate, but you're really misleading people. It turned out that he was right, that, that a lot of those people were, recidivism was based on parole violations, but they were based on parole violations because they'd been arrested for a new crime for which they were later convicted, which he didn't mention. It was just this, it was parole violations that got him into, uh, back into prison, but it turned out it, it was for new crimes that they committed. Um, um, and then it turned out even the initial uh, results that were positive, where he said twice as many um, people uh, that you know they had half as many people go back to jail, um, he was comparing apples and oranges. And um, his original um, comparison was for his group of prisoners that were out of prison an average of ten months, compared to the base rate, which was people out of prison for thirty months. And obviously, the longer this group is out of prison, the more chances they have to get in trouble. So this was, um, Ralph Metzner did this uh, base rate study, and it was published in this obscure journal. It was really hard to find. And so nobody checked it until I did. And so it was, I, I did this follow-up because I, I wanted people to know about this very successful study about the power of psychedelics to reduce recidivism. And then it turned out that an advocate of psychedelics was the one that debunked one of the most important studies ever. And it's just shocking to me how all of the critics never went to the trouble of going to the original documents on which some of these claims were made. Um, now, I presented this to... Um, I brought two prisoners to meet with Tim a few months before he died. One was one who had taken psilocybin and had... had never gone back to jail. Another one was one that had taken psilocybin and had gone back to jail. It was a really nice reunion. It was beautiful. But I, I somehow, in his state, kind of close to death, I didn't ask him why he um, twisted the results. Um, but I did have a chance. I, I just, I knew why. I mean, I think what was going on was that the culture itself was denying the benefits, exaggerating the risks, and doing all sorts of unfair things. And I think he felt justified to do the opposite to exaggerate the benefits and minimize the risks. Because it wasn't really about science anymore. It was about this whole culture wars. But, but I still don't think you should tinker with science in that way. But Ralph was much more uh, willing to be reflective. And um, he said, this finding, which has now turned out to be erroneous, was of course the kind of result we wanted to find. It enabled us to maintain a positive, enthusiastic attitude in talking about this project. We fell victim to the well-known halo effect by which researchers tend to see their data in as positive a light as possible. 
I have myself in later years sometimes forgotten the basically negative result we reported in the study and talked about the project as if we lowered the recidivism rate. So I think Ralph deserves a lot of credit for um, acknowledging that. And he wrote this in an article that was in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs published with the follow-up study. So here's what we really learned. And I think the departure of, of Leary and Albert from Harvard in 63 took place at a time when they were recognizing that you need support systems, that the psychedelic experience is not enough. You can have this experience, but unless it's supported and people are helped to integrate it afterwards, the, the emotional gains are not going to translate into behavior change. And so what Leary said later, the main conclusion of our two-year pilot study is that institutional programs, however effective, count for little after the ex-convict reaches the street. The social pressures faced are so overwhelming to make change very difficult. And they did start a, a group of, uh, sort of support group for the prisoners after they were released. They, they actually started this work and recognized this, but then they were uh, kicked out of Harvard. And that support system eventually fell apart. So I would say that the Concord Prison Experiment uh, doesn't prove that you know psychedelics don't work to reduce recidivism. It, pr it proves that um, you need more than the psychedelic experience, that you really need to, um, as with psychotherapy, you have the psychedelic experience and then you have the integrative non-drug psychotherapy afterwards, and you need something like that to reduce recidivism. So I, I think the field is is open and that there should be research with prisoners and trying to reduce recidivism but that it needs to be a more comprehensive program. And I think the big lesson for me um, is that science is sacred in its own way and that we should not tinker. I mean, if you're engaged in public debates um, that are not scientific, you can say whatever you want, but you can't twist the science. You shouldn't twist the science. And so um, my conclusion is with the current renewal of research into the therapeutic use of psychedelic drugs after three decades of almost total prohibition, Psychedelic researchers must hold themselves to the highest ethical standards in order to retain measure of trust with regulators and the general public. And I think we've done this. I think we have really done a good job of persuading FDA, even DEA, that we're not going to steal the drugs. We're, saying, we're persuading FDA that we're going to report the results as we find them. And um, so I think trust is, is the crucial thing. Um, so now I'm going to move uh, very briefly into uh, moving forward. And so this is just the results of our uh, studies with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. So we have 107 uh, subjects in our Phase two study, U.S., Israel, Switzerland, and Canada. Um, and we have basically a 40-hour psychotherapeutic intervention, which is 12 90-minute um, non-drug psychotherapy sessions spaced out over about three months, three and a half months, three for preparation, then three between three MDMA sessions one month apart. So um, it's a lot of therapy, and it's with a male-female team. So what we're showing here is that 23% of these people who are chronic, treatment-resistant, post-traumatic stress disorder, who've had PTSD an average of over 15 years, that just from the therapy alone, from our placebo group, 23% no longer have PTSD two months after the last MDMA session. So that shows that we're really trying. The therapy is effective to some degree. 
But when you add MDMA, and this is after two sessions, it jumps up to 55%. So more than twice as many now no longer have PTSD after two sessions. And now after we add the third session, it, it jumps up even more. So you can see it's not that big of a jump from 55 to 61%. But what we feel is that a lot of uh, people see the second session as something that they can go really, really deep in because they know if they don't finish all the work, there's going to be a third session. So we find that the second session is often the most productive, that the first is like a tour of their traumatic history, and for some people, that's all that they need. But then once people understand the MDMA, once they've been in this relationship with the therapist and they have developed a deeper therapeutic alliance, the second session, they go really deep. And the third session, for some people, is where the breakthroughs are, but for others, it's sort of just like a cleanup session, not as much as done. But you can still question this, is how important are these findings two months after the last MDMA session? Is this like an afterglow, a halo effect? And does this really last? Or does this somehow fundamentally change people's brains, changes their um, their reactions to, to triggers for trauma? Does it really last? And so we have now um, data from a 12-month follow-up after the last experimental session, and now it's two-thirds of the people no longer have PTSD. So people continue to get better over time. And we can't say it's all just because of the MDMA, because people are um, doing other things. At the two-month follow-up after the last MDMA session, they can't do anything new up to that two-month follow-up. But from the two-month to the 12-month follow-up, they can do whatever they want. And some of them go back to other therapies, things. But they're motivated, and they're able to work on it. So... This so suggests that um, there are long-lasting changes, and also this is what's going to be key to getting insurance to pay for the therapy, because it's not just this very expensive short-term intervention, and then it fades over time. So you might wonder, like, how does this actually work? Uh, why does it work? What does MDMA do? So there's a... Uh, I'm going to show you a, a, a clip. We videotape all the sessions, and so this is going to be a short um, two-minute uh view of an actual MDMA uh, therapy session, and this was from one of the veterans, and one of the things that he was presenting with was rage, that, that he was um, easy, uh, easily triggered into, into rage, and that he had never actually hit his wife, but he was very scared that he might do that, and that this was this big concern, this, this fear and this anger that was just trapped inside him. And so you'll see as we move that... I never realized how much I... I thought I was being a peaceful person, but I didn't realize how much I was punishing that, that, that aspect of me. Mm -hmm. I think I was just... I think maybe in Iraq I saw what it was capable of. And I think I was too afraid to... You know, and a part of me just feels like... so bad that I, I did that to him. I mean, I know it's me, but I just describe who I am. Are you? Um, yeah. But I just mm -hmm. that was really amazing. I, I don't know. I just got this amazing sense of just, I guess, wisdom. I really don't know. Mm -hmm. Sounds a lot like wisdom to me. I was. I was 
Really Amazing and Evil, I try and think of that really rageful aspect of me, like I can't even, I know it's there, but it just doesn't, it, I really feel like so much more at peace with like everything. Great. Even if I try and think about Iraq and everything, like I somehow feel like really peaceful about the fact that that's my journey. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Part of me think I mean, I mean, I know this is um, part of the, uh, you know, part of the drug, but when I try and think, you know, am I going to be able to hold on to this, um, this understanding, and this, um, sort of wisdom, this knowledge that I have now? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, just ask myself that question. I feel like it's so profound that I don't think I could really forget it. Um, now, in terms of how it works, um, we also use the same questionnaires about the mystical experience, as in the psilocybin research and LSD research. And surprisingly, what we find is that... Um, People who have active doses of MDMA score pretty high on the mystical experience. So 0.6 is a full mystical experience. So the mean is 0.46. And, and there's, um, there was about at least 33 people about uh, the, the, when we did this analysis, about uh, 25% of them had above 0.6, had a full mystical experience. And with the comparator doses, which are these 25, 30, 40 milligrams, it's not very high at all. So people do have... Um, mystical experiences under uh, MDMA, according to the questionnaire. And the key thing that we found, and this is, I think, the fundamental difference between the psilocybin work and the MDMA work, is that in the psilocybin work, there's a correlation between the depth of the mystical experience and therapeutic outcomes in the work with LSD, with um, alcoholics, with heroin addicts, with cancer patients, and the the psilocybin work with nicotine um, addiction, with... um, uh, anxiety, depression related to cancer, there's this correlation between the depth of the mystical experience and therapeutic outcomes. But with MDMA, you can see there's no correlation whatsoever. And what that tells us is that for, our, for healing of trauma, for something that happened in your life, that you need to revisit the trauma. You need to be in your biography. You need to be grounded in your history and reviewing it from a position of safety and this ability to process the emotions and then put it into the past. It's not like it's always about to happen. And that is somehow fundamentally different than having a mystical experience. So we, we do have um, another measure that we use called the post-traumatic growth inventory, which is about how people reevaluate the purpose of their lives after confrontation with trauma or almost being killed. And so there is a, a more of a connection between the mystical experience and post-traumatic growth, but that's not the same as overcoming the symptoms of PTSD. So what this does for us, though, is it reinforces this concept that we don't need to have a directive therapeutic approach. We're not trying to move people towards a mystical experience. 
We're just trying to support them as they um, bring up their traumas and talk through them and feel through them that we can have uh, an essentially non-directive approach whereas we, we, we don't try to move them towards this mystical experience. So uh, the good news is that we have been uh, engaged with FDA in uh, extensive negotiations, both about the uh, design of phase three and also um, the importance of the data. And so on uh, August 16th, the FDA declared um, MDMA a breakthrough therapy, which is the gold ring of uh, FDA uh, programs. It's the most important program. They give you the most uh, assistance. They shorten their timetables for how long they have to reply to you. And they're saying that um, in the 10 years that or so that this program has been in existence, 200 drugs have been designated breakthrough therapy, and around two-thirds of them have actually made it into becoming medicines. Um, and so I was concerned about whether FDA would grant us breakthrough therapy because it's so very public. Um, and I was concerned they might think, what if Trump and Sessions find out it's breakthrough therapy, it'll be in the papers, you know, maybe. I knew we qualified. It's a serious or life-threatening uh, disease for whom a large number of people are treatment-resistant, and then your new treatment shows promise to work with these treatment-resistant people. So I knew we qualified. But the fact that the FDA granted breakthrough therapy was, to me, the final proof that the FDA is really putting science over politics. And so when we start talking to our donors and we say we need $25 million to do these phase three studies, the fact that we can say the FDA has come through in every possible way, that this is an experiment worth taking, that we can trust the regulators and that they're trusting us to honestly report the results. So this, this was tremendous. And um, we're now about to um, begin negotiations with the European Medicines Agency as well. And there's a lot of efficiencies in doing, uh, trying to make MDMA or psilocybin the medicine, not just in the U.S., but in Europe and the rest of the world, because a lot of the data is transferable. You get it from one regulatory agency, but others will um, maybe require a little small pilot studies in their own populations, like in Japan. To get it psychedelics approved in Japan, because their genetics they think is so different, you have to do small studies to show it works in their population, but you don't have to repeat most of the studies. So we're about to begin these negotiations. It'll probably take us about a year to figure out exactly what the EMA wants us to do. And we've been able to get um, a lot of progress. But the question is, you know, under Trump and Sessions with this whole return to law and order and the drug war escalation, you know, are we still able to make progress? You know, will they be able to block things? And I, I think that not only will they not be able to block things, but they're actually helpful in certain ways, surprisingly, because they're very much anti-regulations and they're very much pro-business. So their whole tone on the FDA is let more drugs through and don't raise as many safety concerns and, you know, be pro-business. So that's one part. The other part, if you go back, is, is that they're very much focused on the military. I mean, these are military-type people. and they're, So the fact that we're working with veterans with PTSD is, I think, one of the things that's going to make us uh, move through the system, even in this sort of concern about return to law and order. So the next slide is just, I'm almost done. This is uh, the terrible 
statistics, this was as of June 30th, 2016, um, the top number there, 868,000 veterans receiving disability payments for PTSD. 800, now this is over a year ago. Um, and then there's um, another um, almost 600,000 that received disability payments for um, depression and anxiety. So the cost, the emotional cost of war to the veterans is enormous, but the next step is the financial cost. So the last time the VA put out numbers as to what the average annual cost was of people on disability was in 2004, and it was $20,000 per person. So using 2004 numbers of $20,000 per person on average, it's $17 billion a year that the VA spends on disability payments, and for just for PTSD. And when you add in all mental disorders, it's $29 billion. So it's an enormous sum. Uh, you know, Trump is talking about how he wants to uh, increase the military budget by 10%, which is $54 billion. So what we're seeing is that more than half of this $54 billion every year is going out for disability payments for mental health-related disorders, and these are mostly young people, and this is going to be continuing for decades and decades and decades. So we're working with veterans. We're um, addressing a major financial crisis. And um, the other part, I think, that's going to really help us move through this sort of law and order mentality that we're, we're moving into a little bit, at least on the federal level, is that the kind of agreements that we're going to make with the FDA on how MDMA, how psilocybin is controlled once it's a medicine, the FDA has a program called the REMS, Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies. And so what we're proposing is that the drug is not the treatment, it's drug-assisted psychotherapy. So the only people that should be able to prescribe it are people that have been trained in the therapeutic method. And so the FDA, I'm sure, is going to agree with that. It's going to be limited, the prescriptions, to only those people that have been trained. And then it's going to be limited to inpatient or residential doesn't necessarily mean like hospitalization, but that it will be under direct supervision of the therapists in certain kind of regulated clinics where this therapy will take place. So it's never going to be a take-home drug. It's never going to be, here's this drug, and you know do it at home. Always under supervision. And then there'll be very clearly defined safety screening. So we you know exclude people with uncontrolled hypertension, for example, because MDMA increases blood pressure. Uh, right now, we're excluding people with schizophrenia or bipolar or major mental disorders. Not because these kind of people can't be helped, but because they need a more controlled, supportive context to help them. So I think with this, uh, the REMS, what we're going to comfortable with, we'll be able to make it through the system. And then one day, we're going to have psychedelic therapy clinics that will be uh, all over. Um, the model for me is the hospice centers. So the first hospice in America was 1974. By 30 years later, in 2004, there was over about 3,500. Now there's about 6,000 hospices. So I think every community that has uh, enough people and enough compassion to, to alter the way in which we work with people at the end of life will likely be able to have a psychedelic clinic as well. So we anticipate that there'll be roughly uh, 6,000 or so psychedelic clinics throughout America, that these will be multi-trained, so people will be trained in MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, and other drugs. So it'll be psychedelic therapy, not one drug 
or others, and eventually these clinics, you'll be able to go to Google Maps and you'll put in where are psychedelic clinics and they'll be all over the place. <laughs> and um, the other part of this is really public education. So I think what's really the, the grounding of what permits us to make this progress is the fact that we had a population in the 60s that was largely uh, not doing psychedelics, like the participant in the Good Friday experiment that said he saw people doing psychedelics and it seemed out of control to him and he decided he'd never do psychedelics himself in his life and never has, that we have to really ground the support for psychedelics, not just by scientists, not by regulators, but by the public. And so we've had to do a lot of public education and we've been able to um, to do it because in our culture, science gets magnified through media. And I think this is um, the range of, um, this is on the left and this is on the right politically. <laughs> we've arranged it. But we've had Fox News most recently. I think one of the things we're most proud about is that we have a, an article in Breitbart.com about MDMA and breakthrough that was entirely positive. Um, the Washington Post article was really, really good. But they felt obliged to have a balance, and so they had some uh, sort of critics or people expressing their worries about uh, sending the wrong message that MDMA is safe. But Breitbart doesn't care so much about balance, so it was 100% positive. And so we're reaching out in all these different, through the military, in all these different ways to um, what we might uh, say is bipartisan support. So I believe that we're generating bipartisan support, and where the backlash will come from, I'm not sure. I think that's what we have to be constantly alert for. But right now, it feels like um, we're moving really well without that kind of backlash. And so, as I said, I want to be Bill when I grow up. Um, this will be my uh, license one day. We'll have licenses for psychedelic therapy with my clinic on the beach. Um, issued 420, 2021. <laughs> that's when we think we, uh, we'll have it approved. And this will be the start of my real career. And um, I just wanted to say that uh, we had the Psychedelic Science Conference, which was the largest conference on psychedelics ever, uh, 3,000 people in, in April in Oakland, and we videotaped all the talks. So if any of you want to see this incredible volume of and range of talks about psychedelics, it's all up um, on the website for free. Well, you know, thank you all for, for coming out here, you know, for sure. Uh, everybody appreciates what you've done in the, in the field. And, um, you know, we all we owe you a big debt of gratitude. And, uh, you know, I, would, I guess uh, I would say that there's some, there's some interesting, uh, let's say, I, I, I think... There are some, uh, these are some interesting times for the psychedelic community. And why do I say that? Because I think, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the late 60s, uh, things had already been developing for quite a while in terms of psychedelic research. And so what you saw was a, a lot of uh, tension in the community between Leary and, you know, uh, uh, different uh uh, people that were doing clinical research whose research was threatened by some of the politics and the, the uh, feedback that, that, that happened. And um, 
then everything, of course, was forgot about for a while and was taken up, you know, in the mid-90s. And uh, we've had this nice, what I would call a honeymoon period amongst ourselves in this community where everything's been kind of friendly and where people might disagree on some things, but that controversy hasn't really uh, taken over. It hasn't become really pronounced. There's, there's more internal types of uh, squabblings and intentions. But I think that's changing. I think that, I think that the honeymoon period is, is coming to an end. And, there, and the reason for that, I think, is, is money, because uh, people are now seeing all the work that these guys have done to make this an established field, and they think that they can sort of just come in and start to sell stuff. And uh, some of us in, in the science realm and the uh, harm reduction world, uh, we we want to maybe not just hard and fast stop it, but we certainly want to challenge some of the aspects of that and address some of those concerns. And I think that that's what we're seeing now. And that's what the event that Symposia is putting on with uh, Duncan Trussell on microdosing in New York is all about. We think that... Uh, we should first and foremost do no harm and admit what we don't know and admit what we need to know uh, and not just tell people, hey, do this because it's a, it's a good idea and because it works for me, everybody should do it. So, uh, I, you know, with that, I, I guess I would encourage uh, just everybody uh, to try to separate positivism from uh, really getting at the issues at hand and making a stand for what you think is right and, and uh you know, there, there's being respectful, but then there's like being respectful too much where you don't end up addressing some of the elephants in the room. And some of these elephants are, are hurting people around the world. So, um, you know, that's that's all I'll say. I, I think uh, uh, the gloves are coming off in a way and we're getting uh, more critical about um, a lot of these issues. And, and that's a good thing as far as I'm okay, concerned. Thank you. Yeah, the, you know, the psychedelic community is small, and it seems small, and we see each other at the same events, more or less, um, slowly getting to know everybody in the whole movement, and that's incredible. Um, all the same, there is there are cracks, and there are different camps of perspective, and one that came up in a phone conversation I had with Neil, Dr. Neil Goldsmith um, in New York City, and he moderates Horizons, was... Um, and Brent and I just had a similar question about this, talking about your research, Bill, um, that the, the participants in the study couldn't differentiate statistically significantly um, between DXM and psilocybin. Is that correct? DXM. So, frankly, I'm not on top of that, that research. There was a small study that Matt Johnson did with DXM several years ago. Frankly, I don't remember what his findings were. Okay, right. But so with John, I, I would, without knowing the periodical, uh, I, I would guess in in with low dose psilocybin and DXM, it might be hard to differentiate as a placebo as okay. a comparison substance. Yeah. So with that small study as an anecdote to this question. <clears throat> If it is indeed the case that pharmaceutically produced psychedelics and plant or fungus-based altered consciousness experiences, or breathwork for that matter, if they can catalyze experiences that have the, some of the same effects for people using them, then do we? what do we think about 
the underlying mechanism? Is there, is it the shamanic perspective that the plants have teachings and that there are messages or um, that there is wisdom that is passed on to those who imbibe them and, and that there's some inherent wisdom to pharmaceutical um, or lab-produced psychedelics? Um, or is it what Neil Goldsmith said to me that the... Um, <clears throat> that actually it's access to an altered state of mind and that there are new thoughts um, possible due to immersion in um, a realm where possibilities that in our consensus reality we can't consider, suddenly those are accessible to us. Let's we use the mic so anyone feel called to... I'll just send it down the way. <laughs> pass, pass. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> well, I, obviously, this is a huge research frontier, and uh, countless doctoral dissertations can be designed and implemented. Uh, we don't have all the answers. Uh, where I come from personally, just on, on the basis of the years I've been involved in this with LSD and DPT and psilocybin and ayahuasca and so on, um, is I really view the states of consciousness as intrinsic to human consciousness, that they're not in the molecule of the drug, they're in the human mind or spirit, whatever that is. Um, so all these different substances become different, uh, like skeleton keys or triggers and not only the substances, but meditative techniques and natural childbirth and sensory isolation. And for those who are lucky enough, their own endogenous uh, inner DMT factories or whatever it is, you know, that uh, trigger the occurrence of these marvelous states. Uh, a dissertation I, I would love someone to do is... Uh, to take a group, uh, do a double-blind study with psilocybin and pharmawaska, mm -hmm. you know? And my hypothesis would be that there would be just as many panthers and anacondas in both groups. Mm -hmm. you know? Can you explain what pharmawaska is? Yeah, pharma would be a, the DMT uh, of our ayahuasca in a pill form that could be a double-blind administered with psilocybin, so you wouldn't have to uh, have the terrible taste in your mouth, <laughs> even though it's worth it, you know, uh, for most people, I think. Um, and there are, there's so much lore out there about this drug does this kind of experience or whatever, and uh, I think a lot of that is lore rather than science, it, that it varies with dosage and with the psychological set and setting and so on. And, but if you look at the range of experiences uh, with these different triggers, the content is pretty similar, if not identical. You know, there's, you know, it's perceptual changes, there are psychological uh, regressions and reliving of personal dynamics. There's visionary archetypal uh, stuff. There's scenes from other civilizations, uh, gods and goddesses, angels and demons, and then 
there's this intuitive mystical consciousness that if we're lucky we remember one percent of when we come back uh, and uh, I think it's it's just part of being human someone else uh, I'll just say that I, uh, there, there's been a conference uh, a few years ago at this big um, uh, mansion in England, and the purpose of this conference was to discuss whether the uh, perception of aliens that people have um, under ayahuasca, you know, whether these are really um, aliens trying to give messages or, or is it uh, just an aspect of our own psyche. And so they brought Rick Strassman and a bunch of other speakers there in, in kind of a small informal dialogue. And, and not surprising, they didn't solve the problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it feels to me more of a um, the search for aliens or for um, certain deity figures. It's like the, the search for certainty. People want to feel like you're in touch with the truth, that you know what's really going on. And so if some alien tells you, it's probably... You know, more true than if it's from your own psyche or if some god figure tells you that. So I, I think it's kind of a false search for certainty, and that chances are there are aspects of our own psyche, and we project. And I've seen a lot of times in um, psychedelic therapy sessions where content that is too difficult for people to initially handle it gets projected out, and and then over time it sort of becomes a story of their lives. The more that they can integrate it. And, and accept it. And so I think even if it's um, aliens or God or something, you, you can't surrender your critical faculties to some message of truth. You, you have to constantly um, use reason to figure out if that's the message. And, and sometimes they talk about the trickster figures or, you know, the, are, are these really um, you know, true, incontrovertible sources of truth? And I, I think we always see through our own filters. And that, uh, then we have to be aware of that. And so I, I think it's more, um, what do you do with the information, and how do you reflect on it and integrate it? Then whether it's alien or god or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I can say one thing about it. Uh, you know, as a journalist, I'm, I'm trained to be a skeptic. And before before I went down to Brazil and did ayahuasca for the first time, you know, I heard all, all these stories about the plants being teachers and having an attention as a plant. Or Gaia, uh, we're, the planet, we're destroying the planet with climate change. And this Gaia knows that, so that's why there's this all this drone tourism down coming down to Gaia's helping us save ourselves. And you know, as a journalist, I thought that's ridiculous. You know, I can believe you can have these friends in your mind and put meaning into them. But hey, I went down there and I did it, and the experience of the ayahuasca. <laughs> I didn't see any entities or aliens or anything, but it was like it had a qualitatively different nature in that it did seem like a teacher. The experience I had, which I talked about a little yesterday, so I won't repeat it, but but it, like the 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 medicine was leading me somewhere in my mind to learn something, and that was so much different than an LSD trip or even a mushroom trip. So I'm not saying that the plants have intention, but the experience of it was that, and so I'm still skeptical because I just that's how I am. But I, I having experienced it, I think I have an understanding of what people are talking about a little bit more when they when they say that. <laughs> so for those that weren't at the wonderful walking tour yesterday and the book talk, I just a uh, quick introduction. This is Don Latin, 
and John wrote The Harvard Psychedelic Club and Changing Our Minds, um, as well as some other books. And um, he's, you know, we're honored to be joined by him as Changing Our Minds was an excellent read. I highly recommend it to everyone to get into the nitty gritty of what's going on in the psychedelic renaissance. And then, and this is Bill Richards. Um, and he is a psychologist at the psychiatry department at Johns Hopkins, and he wrote Sacred Knowledge, which also gets into the nitty-gritty. So fill your bookshelf. We actually have sold out of a lot of the books. We have a few left, so if you're on your way out, check those. Um, Rick, something that you said um, <clears throat> took hold for me, and that's we can't surrender to our critical faculties. And while um, I think this is true, and it's practically true, um, I feel as though the, with the ecological devastation re being wreaked at the hands of man and the anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic or like human-centered perspective that people take on um, what's best for the world and what's best for mankind, um, I feel as though we should consider what we're basing our critical faculties on. I don't know if you want to speak to that or just putting it in there as a thought. Um. Well, I just think there's, look at all the climate change denial that's going on. So I think the, um, there, there has to be an emotional capacity to handle the horror of what's actually happening to the environment in order for people to um, rationally think about it. So I think the emotions um, channel our rationality. And one of the things we see with MDMA so many times is when people have a reduction of fear, then they can look at their situation in a, in a clear way and make changes that they've been stuck for decades or, or even a shorter period i'll just give one example it was one of the veterans in our study had um, ptsd and in his first mdma session which was his only one because he felt cured after this and dropped out he said that he recognized that um that there was something in it for him to have ptsd and this was the loyalty he had to his fellows who were killed and by keeping PTSD and keeping being tormented by that, that was um, this connection to his brothers in arms that had died. And what he realized under MDMA was that they were dead and they would not want him to sacrifice his life. He'd made it through somehow. And that the proper way for him to honor them was to live his life as fully as possible. And within that, he said, okay, now what am I going to do with my life? And in that shift he was cured and it took this emotional kind of recognition and then the logic kicked in so I, I think the um, the work that we're trying to do with um, psychedelics to help people go deep into their emotional conflicts will um, clarify rationality and all the people that are denying the changes and the retreat from reality is just because the, the, the pain and the emotions are so strong. So I think emotional healing will clarify so much of, of what we're trying to do for so many people. I have a lot of faith in it. I do. That's why I'm here. Um, and you mentioned in your talk that <clears throat> the mystical experience in the Good Friday experiment had this social justice component of everyone realizing we're all created one, were the same. Um, and it had a curious, uh, it, ha it had a curious uh, um, conflict for me to something that Wendy said, which was, if we don't pay attention to disparities in power that exist between certain groups, we're going to leave the problems of inequality that we're trying to change in the society, the society that we're trying to transform, those 
problems of inequality are going to remain. Um, so I'm wondering to the panel, what are your intentions as leaders in the psychedelic movement for using these tools as skillfully as you can to make the world a more equitable place? And I actually, Rick, you gave a great answer to this last night, but I'm, I'm interested to turn it to all. We're scholars, authors, reaching a lot of ears, eager ears to hear the messages that you have to teach. So what are our strategies for um, addressing racial disparities and income inequality and um, prejudice still faced by communities of LGBTQ and so on, disability? I'll start. Um, I think it's partly that we can't do the psychedelic movement in uh, sort of segregation from all the other social movements that we have to be involved with. I, I was struck when Rick was talking about the, was it the Concord Prison experiment, and that there was this high rate of recidivism afterwards, and you said, well, partly you thought that was there wasn't the structure to integrate the experience. I figure it's probably there was that they went back into a society that was brutal, mm -hmm. and no matter how much of a transformative you know experience you had under the substance, you go back out, and there's still no job. And you're still, you know, being harassed by the police, and you're still living under, you know, really suboptimal conditions. So I think, you know, for a small group of us who are privileged in every other way, you know, psychedelic transformation might be enough. But I think for most of us, uh, as long as the society is deeply unjust and unequal, hopefully we can have our consciousness raised and recognize that we are in it together and so forth. But I also think it means that um, we have to recognize that the transformation isn't just on an individual level and it has to be collective work that we do to move towards a more equitable, just, humane, ethical society. I'll, I'll add that, um, you know, I had thought that by trying to be um, open-minded in our ways and um, non-prejudiced that that somehow things would work out where um, we'd have a representative sample of people coming to our studies. Um, and I've been really surprised that, um, particularly in the study that we're, we've done with veterans, where a lot of um, African Americans, a lot of uh, Native Americans, a lot of underprivileged people are... Um, motivated for economic reasons to go into the military, I thought that we would have um, a fairly representative sample, but we haven't had a single African-American up. When I talk about 107 subjects in phase two, they're all white. Wow. And wow. so it really surprised me. And, and so I think what we um, need to recognize is the, the legacy of the, like the Tuskegee experiments and the, the kind of sense of injustice that, that we can't be unprejudiced ourselves and just think it's going to work out. So we've actually had to seek out um, opportunities to try to um, engage um, African Americans in becoming therapists. I mean, because that's one of the big issues, and we still actually don't have any. Um, there was one woman who was uh, an African American psychiatrist, but then she... Um, started having a baby and <laughs> couldn't work on the study. So we have to kind of, I think, proactively reach out, not just be 
this, you know, not discriminating ourselves. And so we're, we're working with the woman, Jay Sevelius, who's, mm-hmm. you know, so we're going transgender trauma related to transgender or um, other kind of um, sexual orientation issues. We've got a study at one of the phase three sites is going to be at the University of Connecticut with um, a team that's going to be African-American therapists. So we finally do have some there at that team and that site. And so um, it's just how hard it is, I think, to um, reach out to underserved populations and, and help them see a on-ramp to be participating in the studies. Just for the historical note, and a record, uh, I kind of want to let you know that in the uh, early days before the Great Freeze uh, in the Spring Grove and Maryland Psychiatric Research Center days where we were doing research in treatment of alcoholism and narcotic addiction and uh, terminal cancer patients, in that period of history, uh, I don't know exactly, but I wouldn't be surprised if close to half of our research volunteers were African-American. Yeah. And the surgeon would say, you know, I, I think uh, this experimental treatment might prove helpful for you. And they'd say, okay, doctor, I'll give it a try. And um, um, I have many wonderful memories from uh, those decades. Flash forward to uh, Hopkins now, we have a sprinkling of non-white participants, you know, but but nowhere near 50%, you know? And uh, uh, why is that? You know, maybe think the echo of the Tuskegee uh, themes in, in history. Uh, we don't have any African Americans on our staff right now, much as we would love to. Uh, etc. Et but, you know, it's something we're trying to consciously address. Uh, but um, social change takes time, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, it, takes, it doesn't take just time. And I know that's not what you're saying. Right. Um, our second meeting of Ben, we broke off into discussion groups to talk about how the movement could be more inclusive in general. And I really appreciated the dialogue that came up. Um, one <coughs> member spoke of the um, unfair discrepancy in uh, racial profiling and in terms of like uh, people of color being more at risk to carry substances on them or to even consider using them, and that people of color are more likely to have family members incarcerated on drug charges or they're more likely to have been profiled and already have a charge on their record, you know, that maybe they wouldn't have if they were um, of the demographic that police don't profile as much, so that puts them further at risk. So I think there's that, and um, and then his offering to uh, address that was to emphasize the historical uses of these substances in all of our ancestral lines that I'm not sure who in the movement told this to me, but just about everybody can trace back to some sort of mystical experience that their ancestors had. And that was encouraging to me. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I just thought I had the, the, one of the, um, the ways, you know, that we make women feel safe in the studies is the male female go therapy teams. So that's consciously part of that, um, sense of how do you make a safe environment for vulnerable populations in some ways. So I, I think the male-female team 
you know, and then we've been criticized by some, like, well, what about people that are non-binary, or how do you describe what we're trying to accomplish? And we haven't really figured out, um, maybe when, if you have some suggestions, but I think, you know, we, we have, um, in on one occasion, had a two-female team, so it's not always has to be male-female, but um, kind of the Eugene of polarities, or, or however we want to explain it. So we used to say that... Um, in our informed consent form and in our protocols that it was um, uh, any uh, male or female over 18 years old. And so we've changed that. So now it's persons over 18. But we're not sure quite how to update, you know, because we do want this kind of polarities in the co-therapy team. But it doesn't have to be strictly male, female, but we don't know how else to describe it. At Hopkins right now, uh, our our ideal is a male female team. You know, uh, frankly, sometimes it's just not logistically possible. You know, we, the personnel just aren't there to do it in the research ske- schedule. And so then our fallback is to have uh, two therapists, the same sex as is the patient, you know, or the volunteer. And uh, it's less than ideal. But also, there's something big. I think every person, whether male or female, clearly has a feminine and masculine pull to the psyche. Uh, Women can be strong, men can be gentle. (laughs) You know, you can be maternal or paternal. So I I don't want to press this as an absolute... uh, standard, uh, but I think it's highly desirable. Yeah, I'll just say I don't have a recommendation, but I do have a sense that probably asking patients what they need would be a good way to start. So for some of us, having a man and a woman in the room would not be the, the... Yeah, would not be the preference. would not be the safe space, and it might be... Um, Having that conversation, at least, would be the way to start to fill in what is it that people need in terms of diversity in the room with them when they're having these experiences. Thank you. Yeah, and I I think that strong is a quality that comes up right away when I think about female. Anyway, um, <laughs> females can be strong, they often are. <laughs> uh, is this about diversity? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Oh, oh, I wouldn't normally do this, but... Um, could people speak to you if they want to hear about... Um, well, well, yeah, I mean, I do diverse recruiting for the grants that we have for the CDD. So uh, the government incentivizes diverse recruiting... Uh, through federal grants, but guess what? That's not what we're talking about here. There's limited amount of resources and funding, and uh, there's uh, a, a, a lot to do with that limited amount of funding. So funding could really uh, address some of these issues, but even funding is uh, not the end-all, be-all, because uh, there's a lot to do in research also, and we don't necessarily have the pull and university administrators really need to take the d- diversity issue more seriously because it takes marketing, it takes community outreach, it takes like coalition building. It just doesn't happen overnight. There's a lot of trust that's involved, 
And uh, I think that once psychedelic research uh, gets even more uh, in the sphere of NIDA and, and NIH in a positive sense, I'm hoping that they could offer diversity supplements to the grants that they have and uh, give you some administrative budget to essentially go out and do the diverse recruiting that's that's needed because it, it entails a lot of traveling and and uh, marketing and coalition building. It's it's not something that happens overnight. There's whole conferences that happen around it. There's whole entire organizations that build their whole platform uh, on it, and uh, it's something that we we need to take seriously, but also realize that we're not necessarily in a position to do it all on our our own because it's it's a very rich subject. Uh, that uh, there's a lot of experts in that field uh, independently working that have done good work, and there's a lot to, to do. Yeah, we're definitely in a position to do it together, I think, and I think that we have a role in that and in asking for that uh, and talking about it is important, even if it's not someone that you think wants to hear about it, feel that uh, it's necessary to bring it up so that this results of these studies and this research can be re- representative of people that are being served, which is... All, human, all humanity and the earth to a greater extent. Um, I, want, I think this is a good shift into um, counterculture, and maybe we can hear from some of the authors and, and Carl down there. would love to hear. <laughs> still here, right? still with us. Okay. Um, <laughs> so working within the mainstream, it's necessary. Like Rick said, um, one of the key lessons from the Good Friday experiment was the work needs to happen in an integrated way with the mainstream, not as a countercultural trend. Um, so it offers its challenges to work in the mainstream. It may be necessary for where we have to get to. And yet I think that something could be said for the value of the countercultural movement. And I dare say, uh, speak for myself, the counterculture is what spoke to me and brought me to this place where now I'm willing to work within the mainstream for the future that I see possible. Um, does that resonate with anyone else? Did the countercultural movement? <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about that. I'll send the mic down to Carl. Do you want to start? speak, Carl? Oh, counterculture? Yeah. Or anything else? <laughs> Poem. Uh, I don't know if I know about uh, countercultural, um, but I'm very interested in, in uh, laying bare the hypocrisy of our historical record. Uh, we have refused to recognize the role that entheogens have had in the evolution uh, of all cultures. And in particular, we're willing to say, well, maybe it happens in Africa, maybe the Aborigines of Australia do it. But I'm interested in the core of the origin of what we consider the European uh, tradition of civilization. And it's there deeply embedded in the origin of Christianity and in um, the uh, pre-Christian religions and in the religions that uh, civilized. Well, one of the books um, that, that I co-authored is Mushrooms, Myth, and Mithras, the drug cult that civilized Europe. And that is facetious because Europe was quite well civilized before it was colonized by the Romans. What the Romans did was destroy cultures and impose, impose their own. But as a matter of fact, the cohesive bond of the male elite, the bureaucrats, the army, and the emperors that administered the, the empire, um, they cemented their bond of brotherhood with, a, with, a, with an entheogen. And if we don't face that, 
uh, we don't know who we are. And in particular, was there a psychoactive sacrament in Judaism? Yes, of course there was. It's right there in the Bible, in, in Genesis. Uh, in Exodus, we have, we have the formula for the holy anointing oil of the priesthood. It's clearly there. Why it's there is interesting. Um, but um, it contains huge amounts of cannabis. It's been recognized. The cannabosum uh, is an import into, into uh, Hebrew. It's a Scythian word, and it's cannabis. Um, there's no doubt about it. Um, and uh, it... Uh, Good shit. And, uh, and, and, and who, who tried it, um, uh, you, you, um, you make the uh, anointment oil and, and, and smear it on your scalp. And he came back the next day and he said, Professor, it really works. He was the son of, uh, of a rabbi. And I pointed out to him, I said, Ahmed, yes, but remember the next um, you know, phrase in the Bible is that if anyone does this who is not a priest, he's to be cut off from the tribe. Now, um, why did they leave it in there? Well, because the, the Bible is an accumulative writing. And so they added that later. But you're not supposed to know that. but And then you're not supposed to know what cannibalism is. Anyway, but um, beyond that, um, was, was there a psychoactive sacrament in early Christ, Christianity? There were many sects of early Christianity, which the church dominant um, uh, excised. If you look at the heretical, the Gnostic traditions, they definitely had a psychoactive sacrament. And how far back does it go? Um, let me just, I don't want to monopolize. Let me just point out one, one other thing. Um, the early uh, uh, Christian documents, the Gospels, are, are not by the people they're supposed to be. Um, they're by several people. Uh, they were revised and rewritten and so forth. But one of the earliest authentic documents that we have are the writings of Paul, because he founded the, the Catholic Church, the Christian Church, and so they preserved his writings. Most of them are authentic. And so about the middle of the first uh, century, he had never known Christ himself. He writes in the first Corinthians uh, to uh, the congregation. They had visited ten years earlier and converted to Christianity, um, that they are doing the Eucharist incorrectly. And in fact, he identifies what an entheogen is. He says, if you, if you take the Eucharist and do not see in it the spirit, the, the, uh, the blood and, and flesh of the Lord, you have abused it. And, and then he says, um, and so what has happened? Many of you have gotten sick, and quite a few have died, right? Really died from eating bread? <laughs> what were they eating? And then he also says, I will teach you a mystery. And he establishes the Christian mystery. I've argued that it was Paul, in fact, who made up the whole Eucharist as the central rite of Catholicism and, and, and the Orthodox Church. Uh, I will teach you a mystery. And he's saying this to Corinthians, who are only 40 miles distant down the coast from Eleusina. Most of them would have been initiated into Eleusis. They could not understand mystery in any way other than the way it was practiced 40 miles away. And Paul was very interested in religion. There's good evidence that he was initiated at Eleusis. He was probably initiated into, into Zoroastrian Mithraism as well. Um, and so what were they eating that killed them? 
When I point that out to people, like theologians, they stop talking to me. <laughs> Counterculture, anyone else? Uh, well, my question is, what does it mean to mainstream something? Uh, if by mainstreaming... Uh, the psychoactive drugs, it means pharmaceuticalizing them. And what I think of when I think of pharmaceuticalizing things is individualizing it so that you go. In fact, I, in, in Dying to Get High, there's an interview with Valerie Corral, which you sort of that I'm reminded of in this context. She says something like, if they succeed in turning marijuana into a pharmaceutical drug that you go to the pharmacy, you get a prescription from your doctor, you go to the pharmacy individually, you pick it up, you take it home, you go home, and you have your medicine by yourself in your home, it will have destroyed what she thought was the most critical element in um, her understanding of the healing properties of marijuana, and that was people coming together in community, you know, passing the joint or um, or supporting each other in a WAM meeting and finding out who needed what or going to Burning Man and having a, a cultural, a totally transformative cultural experience, not just a drug experience. So I worry I, when we talk about mainstreaming or when Rick mentions the need to mainstream and that it shouldn't be a countercultural trend, in part because I think our culture is so toxic. I don't want to mainstream into that. If we think we can change it by ingesting these substances, okay. But I think we actually have to be a little bit more critical about what the mainstream looks like and what effects it would have on our movement to become mainstream. Like I think about MDMA being used in these therapeutic settings to help an individual deal with the experience of trauma. And that is wonderful because we have all this population that's traumatized. But really, why don't we try to stop the trauma? Like if we're all we're doing is helping soldiers become less traumatized by their experience, so we can send in a new generation and then bring them back and give them MDA, MDMA. Mm, not enough for me. Uh, well, just as a as a as a journalist in terms of the mainstreaming the message uh, uh, versus the counterculture or the psychedelic bubble. I mean, Rick, you put up uh, the media outlets there that have helped get the message out. One of which is the San Francisco Chronicle, which I worked for for many years, and and I've done you know, a lot of articles, and uh, they give it good coverage. And uh, I actually got some volunteers to find out about the program and volunteer and get help, and that was very satisfying for me. And then with the, the last book I just wrote, which is Changing Our Minds, I was really trying to write that for a general audience. I really wasn't trying to preach to the choir, and I was tr and um, and it's been frustrating because I've gotten really nice offers to speak in inside the psychedelic bubble, like here or the Telluride Mushroom Festival or Breaking Convention. But it's it's been hard to get interest like just regular bookstores compared to my other books, or get newspaper reviews in Maine. Even my own the Chronicle hasn't even reviewed the book yet, which really surprises me. They've done six books, and this is the first one they haven't reviewed. So I think there's still a lot of resistance actually in the mainstream world to what we're talking about. And we kind of forget that when we're only talking to each other, you know, in this bubble. And uh, so it's something I've struggled with with this book, just trying to, you know, stop preaching to the choir. And not that I'm trying to really be an advocate necessarily. I'm just trying to get my book out there and let people know it exists. So if they want to read it, they can read it. But it's been it's been a struggle. 
I know you want to say something. Yeah. I want to make one comment, side comment. Um, and when it is presented as a headline in a newspaper, it's usually like, ecstasy users receive healing. Would you look at that? Can't believe that. You know, so it's like really put out in this like um, shock and awe perspective instead of, wow, look at this um, potential medicine that um, uh, the government has propagandized since the 70s and that actually is finally being recognized as useful by the work of nonprofits. So I'll pass it to you now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the kind of um, distinction I'd like to make between um, counterculture and mainstream is that counterculture is, in a way, making a break from the culture. It's like we're going off somewhere else and we're going to try to create a new culture. Or we're going to... Um, th there's a difference. There, there's just this kind of divide. And I think the mainstreaming by... I don't mean adopting all values of the current culture, but I mean um, seeing ourselves as scouts into the future. And so you can have a culture, and you know this was actually, you know, biblical. You you know you, you know the, they they would send out scouts and they would scour the land, and then they would come back and say go this way or go that way. So the scouts are still connected to the culture. They're sent out as emissaries. And then they come back and they try to bring the new information that they learned. And you can say psychonauts or scouts into the psyche or different ways. But there's that idea of coming back and reforming and changing and helping with the direction rather than sort of a rejection completely and we're going to go off on our own. So I, I don't mean that we want to just, uh, you know, mainstream. And that. So, so, for example, how we're selling MDMA, how we propose that MDMA be sold as a medicine. So we have a benefit corporation that we've started that's wholly owned by MAPS, but it's a for-profit corporation, and the purpose of the benefit corporation is to maximize social benefits, not profits. And so it's a reform of capitalism, but it's linked into the culture, and it's part of um, legal context that have been created in California and Delaware to create these benefit corporations. Now there are several thousands of them. But the benefit corporation is not a counterculture phenomena. It's part of an evolving culture. And so I, I think what terrified a lot of the mainstream culture during the 60s was this idea of the rejection completely and, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out. And, and really, you know, and Tim would talk about how he really also meant drop out and then figure out and then come back. But that part gets underemphasized. So I think there's this... Um, we are trying to heal individual trauma and then heal the causes of trauma. And that's the part. But, but I think it's it's who we're speaking to. And so I, I think you made a really good point, Don. It's that we've got to be speaking to the doubters, the skeptics, the people that are the Trump supporters. How do we reach out to them and help them see? And, and I'd say that the, the part of the research that I feel is the most um, revolutionary is the work that Bill and others are doing with religious leaders from different religious traditions and trying to find um, what's common in some ways, what's unique, but also what's common. So I'd say the challenge is how do we reach out to fundamentalists who are having their worldview dissolve through globalization, through the Internet, through communications? How do we help people that are holding on to the old views um, open up? How do we replace fundamentalism with mysticism? And how do we go to ISIS? How do we go to these people who are um, willing to die for these um, 
ideologies that are lodged in the past and, and help them open up. And so I think that's the sort of this, the direction or the stream that I'm talking about. It's like going into the problem areas of the culture. The other big example for me is actually Herman Hess, who wrote uh, The Glass Beat Game, which was one of the you know best books I've ever read. It was you know helped lead him to get the Nobel Prize, but it was written during World War II. But it was about this idea of channeling the destructive energies of the called the competitive destructive energies of the culture into this uh, philosophical musical kind of glass bead game. But then the book is about how these um, this solution to war became so elitist that it lost the connection to the culture and it no longer served that function anymore. So I think we have to keep trying to link into the sources of fear and confusion and not think of ourselves as living in some separate universe. Yeah. Okay. Yes, you've A lot of thoughts here. I'm not sure what order they'll tumble out in. <laughs> but uh, one of the thoughts is I sometimes think the bubble is bigger than we realize. You know, that, uh, you know, when my book came out, two of my neighbors came over to tell me about their psilocybin experiences, mm-hmm. and it never would have occurred to me that they knew anything about the subject, you know. And uh, I've been struck with how the uh, press coverage since research resumed around 2000, has as a whole been very level-headed and responsible. There's been hardly any of the sensationalistic, you know, mind-bending, mm-hmm. jumping-off skyscraper kind of rhetoric of the uh, 1970s. In fact, there was one article that uh, had a sensationalistic uh, title that where the uh, senior editor had overruled the writer and we protested and they changed it, you know? So uh, the, I, I, I want to give the press kind of high grades as a whole. And also I think the old scare tactics just don't work. You know, that even those who didn't take psychedelics in college generally had friends who did. And they know that most of them turned out okay, you know? Uh, and... Uh, the chromosome damage and all, all this stuff uh, really doesn't fly anymore. And I think the population as a whole may be much more astute than we realize. Uh, I think it's a bit like the gay rights movement, that there's a lot of people who have had meaningful psychedelic experiences or spontaneous mystical experiences in one framework or another, who still are kind of in the shadows. You know, they uh, they don't feel free to talk about it out loud. But as they feel more safe, I think we'll be amazed at what a large community there is. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, I think the need for psychedelic community groups is... Um, shown by that point. That's my next point. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll send send it back to you. Precisely that even in this group, we're not only talking about bhakti yoga, Mm -hmm. but we're talking about karma yoga. You you know, that that it's not just having experiences, but it's changing social forms and 
integrating them. You know, that, changing, that's critical. Changing our minds. <laughs> yeah. Changing yeah. 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 And um, being mindful of the halo effect, but mm-hmm. being ambassadors to this truth that we have known. You can speak for your own personal experience. And um, do you want to say more, Bill? No, that's good. That's it? Okay. Wanting to leave time for your questions and and for Bill to catch his flight on time. Yes. Right. What time do we have to end by? We have about 10 minutes. 10 minutes, and that includes audience questions? Yes. Yeah. Do we have any more? you want to switch to audience questions? Have any more questions? Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to know a few things, but it can wait for next year. <laughs> <laughs> You're all going to come back next year, right? <laughs> well, I... Let's shift to audience questions, and then I'll, I'll make a, a last point at the end. Please, you came all the way from Martha's Vineyard. Tell us. I have more of a comment, and it's about the mainstream and, and the media in particular, is that we have the ability to step up and correct, you know, on the internet, basically, you know, in, in a comment section, say, you know, this is incorrect, or this is sensationalistic, and link to maps, and link to Pepper, and link to studies that will, um, in some cases, make people that never heard of any of this stuff go, wow, what's that? And who knows where it's so the democratization in a way of, of being able to be helpful as well as harmful, you know, fake news stuff. But I found that um, the first time I put myself out there with my name, you know, in the New York Times section or whatever, like, it was like, click. And um, I haven't gotten any responses from people that have known me. It's like, wow, that's weird. Sarah, right? Jane. Just because the the panel's being recorded. So Jane was mentioning about um, having spoken out and called out discrepancies in the literature and that there wasn't a huge backlash from her social circle. Right, pointing out misleading evidence. Um, do you that, want to take, I'll take that microphone? Oh, you can use this one, which I think works. Hello, hello. Maybe not. We are, we are close to that, okay. so the mic right. can go to the audience. Um, so one of the things I just want to kind of comment to everyone, and also to Jane's um, comment, is that as a as a student in my early twenties, I find it a little bit more acceptable sometimes for for me um, to talk about these things. Um, and one of the big things was was when I first started more publicly uh, talking about my interest in psychedelic science, I was nervous about um, my extended family. Uh, and that was something, because a lot of them are very conservative, I admit there are some Trump supporters in my family, and so um, that was an issue. Um, and it took me a while to just accept the fact that it really doesn't matter what anyone else thinks um, if they're not going to accept... Um, you know, who you are and what you do, um, it's your, it's your job to educate them, um, in a respectful way. But, um, one of the things I'm working on is a year long independent study during my fifth year here at Northeastern. Um, and all those kind of end in a more culminal, um, like, long-term paper. Um, I'm also doing some educational articles um, throughout the entire last year here that I'm hoping to have more accessible to everyone, not just people who have a dense background in neuroscience or psychology. Um, so if anyone has uh, ideas about what those articles should be about, I would love to hear that at some point. Go. Uh, thank you all for 
everything you said. Um, how do we create a new Eleusis? How do we institutionalize entheogens? How how do we create psychedelic rites of passage? Mm. That's easy. One. That's easy. That did seem to be directed towards me. It's a very dangerous thing because I would hesitate to offer anyone guidance in the experience because that would be imposing a religion. And I think that you should be free from all preconceptions. Uh, I um, contributed an essay to a book that's coming out on the future of psychedelics for global uh, improvement and my essays on what it was like to experience the mystery. And I uh, quote both uh, St. Paul and Plato who define what the mystery was. It was to come face to face with deity. And it's a soul-shattering experience. What does deity look like? It has an infinity of faces, and when you reflect back from that, you realize that you have an infinity of faces. And the challenge of the mystery after the initiation is to realize that you have a finite existence in the context of infinity, and you have the challenge, actually, which the Greek poets clearly enunciated. The gods aren't good you have the possibility of being better than the gods. That's what humanism is. Yeah. Well, I think from a strategic question, um, that what we've seen with medical marijuana over the years is that medicalization changes people's attitudes and leads towards people being supportive of legalization. So I think the way that um, you know Carl is talking about having a new elusis but free from particular dogmas, that we're not going to get it just from religious freedom, because that's about groups. We're not going to get it from medicalization, but that creates a, a, a ground public opinion that says we don't need prohibition, and then we can go beyond that. And so I think the festivals like Burning Man that people are creating are new rituals for the modern age and that are heavily interwoven with psychedelics. And yet there's police presence there. There's a lot of people there who are not prepared for the experiences, who have very negative experiences. So accompanying sort of post-prohibition world with honest drug education, with um, pure drugs, and then with harm reduction policies that are throughout, I think we can move towards this uh, creation. I think one of the things that's key, and I think, Bill, you've talked about this, is that um, the people that, from the religious professional studies, that you can realize that your religion is just the particular cultural context, and that there's something deeper connecting all religions, but it, it doesn't necessarily take people away from their culture, or their religions, that you can derive new meaning and invest new meaning in old symbols. So I think the fear is among all the fundamentalists is that if you acknowledge a deeper reality, then you have to throw out everything that you've had before and somehow communicating that you can have this 
mystical roots, but you can still be part of your communities and part of your traditions and that you can find new meaning in them. It, it doesn't mean, you know, throwing it all out. Yeah, I just underscore that. You know, uh, my impression is, is that uh, certainly working with religious professionals is that when they have a really profound mystical type experience of one kind or another, that they usually have a new appreciation for their own tradition, whatever it is, you know, the the dogmas, the creeds, uh, they can decipher better, it comes alive, it has fresh meaning, they appreciate the history of their church or denomination or whatever it is, but at the same time, there's an appreciation of many paths up the mountain. Almost like there are, I have a language that's rich in tradition, but there are other languages that are also rich, you know? And uh, so there's an openness and a tolerance and an ability to maybe unite with other religions in social activism or whatever, you know? And uh, maybe I'll get together for a Thanksgiving service or whatever. Uh, uh, so they go together. It's not either or. Another just comment while I happen to have the mic is just to underscore the importance of education itself. I think the main reason Don and I wrote our books was to try to contribute to the so-called education of the masses. You know, that there are so many people out there, uh, in, in many of them very well-educated people, even in uh, medical circles, who kind of assume that the psychedelics are unpredictable and dangerous and that they might, well, cause chromosome damage or whatever. And they're not bad people. They're just uninformed. They're still subject to the rhetoric of a few decades ago. And all of us in our communications and in our emails and whatever can, can help spread just you know, read this article, go to this website, uh, have you heard about this latest study from Hopkins, you know? Um, and uh, education's a beautiful thing, you know? And eventually, you know, the hundredth monkey principle, that where all of a sudden the 49% becomes the 51%, and what was unthinkable is suddenly what's the big deal? Yeah. Uh, women are bright enough to vote. Uh, gay people can honestly love others, etc., <laughs> you know, etc. Et you know, and uh, it's not a big deal anymore. You know. Yeah. Well, I think that would be the measure of success when these psychedelic clinics are just taken for granted. Like, oh, there's always oh, hop, there's one out on the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Another question from the audience. Hi, um, kind of hate to bring this up in light of the fact they were talking about entheogens and LSD and shrooms, but I have to admit, I think this might be specific to you, Rick, uh, this question uh, and comment. I've had experiences with Envone that were just as good as with LSD, and so I'm very curious about the research chemical space and what role that might play in all of this because. Sometimes it seems like they're trying to skirt the law because they can make things that are temporarily legal. And then at the same time, 
Um, it makes me wonder if with all this experience in creating so many variations that they might actually be gaining some knowledge in that area of making something that could be even safer or or just more specific to people's needs. Do you have anything to say about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, well, N-bomb can be deadly, as you know, as well. Right. So yeah. it's, it's very dangerous. But I think from um, the, the what point... Is what is it you're talking about? Maybe you should say... Do you want to describe it a little bit? Um, it's just more just the same thing. It's like LSD or... N-B-O-M-E. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah they, they're like an analog. I guess they oh, call okay. them. They can be in top form, just like LSD, and it provides the same experience. But because they're not regulated, um, they can be well, right there. And, well, people can overheat. There, there are differences. So sometimes, um, it, it used to be that um, because LSD is effective in such small amounts, that if you had water acid, it was always acid. It was always LSD. But now there's new drugs like this 25i and um, that's. Um, effective in micrograms and you can get it onto water acid so you don't always know and so and people have died from that but i think the from a, the point of the work that we're doing to try to medicalize drugs that these new drugs are would be too expensive for us to ever make into a medicine meaning that because they're new you have to develop a large amount of information on the safety profiles of these drugs and because we're working with demonized drugs that have been around for a very long period of time, like, for example, there's so much research on psilocybin or LSD already in the scientific literature that trying to medicalize them, we don't have to repeat that. The kind of um, work that is going to be done with new drugs, they can also be patented. And so, because they're new. So for-profit pharmaceutical companies may one day start trying to look at how do we make a better MDMA or a better psilocybin or time-release MDMA or MDMA combined with something that then has an effect on supposed neurotoxicity or different kind of ways that I think um, there, there will be a lot of development. And they may very well develop drugs that are improved in one way or another on the, the sort of more commonly used drugs. But from our practical perspective, we couldn't afford to make one of those into a medicine. And so we're not even looking at that and we're not, you know, involved with chemists trying to make new drugs. You know, in a way, MDMA was because uh, it was reinvented because MDA, which was very popular during the 60s, methylene dioxyamphetamine, was criminalized in 1970. And then underground chemists started trying to tinker with the molecule to make something that was legal and rediscovered MDMA even though it was invented by Merck in 1912. People didn't even really know that. So in a sense, this kind of search for um, alternatives is what brought us MDMA. So there may be other things, but I just uh, don't know how we would medicalize them. And because if they're new, they can be patented, maybe one day the for-profit pharmaceutical companies will work on those. But I think it's very important research that people's done. But you have to be really careful because these drugs do have sometimes unknown risks. We can go till 2.15 so we can have some more. All right. Yes. And then who was it back there? Well, a bit of a question and a uh, comment leading off where we're going. Accessibility. As MDMA, for example, psilocybin becomes medicalized and suddenly we have clinics on the corner where you can go for therapy to deal with this and PTSD, you know, wartime PTSD is one of the focuses 
does this expand into epigenetic PTSD, cultural PTSD, and what can be done within the community to make sure that it remains accessible as the money changers are now outside the gates of a temple waiting to come in and potentially limit access, which is what we've seen time and again. We've seen it with the synthetic versions of cannabis or that aren't always as effective as the actual plant itself. Just wondering if you can speak on that and the difference between the botanical, the organic, the maybe the entourage or the synergism of more than just the cannabinoids, more than just a little thing, more than just psilocybin versus, oh, we've now made a pill version of it that may not, may have the quote-unquote same effect, but maybe not having the full effect. Well, I'll start with the accessibility issue, and I think that's really the key is insurance coverage. And so if we can collect um, health economic data about people's healthcare utilization before and after certain kind of treatments, then we'll be able to get insurance to coverage. I think otherwise, if it's only available to people that could afford to pay for it outside of insurance, it's not going to be accessible to the people that need it the most. Not, not to say that people that have resources don't need it also, but I think the key is really starting to negotiate we're already in contact with various insurance companies, and we're working with fellow Jerry Aborn, who's head of pharmacoeconomics at Harvard Medical School, and he's talked to us about what kind of data we can gather in the phase three studies that will help persuade the insurance companies to cover it. And I don't think it'll be that difficult for PTSD because it's well known that people with PTSD have higher healthcare utilizations from the stress, from panic attacks, emergency room visits, and in all different ways. But it's hard to get that data in a short-term study because this shows up over years. Mm-hmm. So we'll be trying to do longer-term follow-ups, but we want to get insurance to cover it right away. So, you know, and a lot of insurance companies are not the same ones that pay for disability payments. Right. So if you um, have unsuccessfully treated PTSD, you can get disability, but the insurance companies aren't going to shoulder that cost, so they're not as um, willing to, to cover them. So I, I think insurance is the key issue. The, the other part about the entourage effect, um, I think one of the, from a social benefit perspective, making the marijuana bud into a medicine in smoked or vaporized form in a generic way would put a break on what a lot of companies are talking about in terms of patenting extracts in non-smoking delivery systems that then they can charge large amounts of money for. And... You know, it's possible um, in Israel, in the middle of the desert, they're able to grow high-potency trim buds for around 50 cents a gram. So around $14 an ounce for high-potency trim buds. So it will be pretty inexpensive, and it will be a break on big pharma. But I think we'll have to find out that in certain cases, the entourage effect is going to make sense. But in other cases, maybe particularly for a certain kind of tumors where we know that the cannabinoids have anti-tumor properties, Maybe it's going to be certain cannabinoids and terpenes that really make it for certain kind of tumors. And so it may very well be that the extracts, you know, in, in certain combinations will be more effective than the plant for some indications. And so, we'll, so we want to see research done as much as possible by the for-profit industry. And I just think if there's this uh, alternative 
low cost, also covered by insurance, it, it will also deal with the accessibility issue because it'll put a break on how much people can charge for these patented products. Time for one more question. Oh, can I just say one quick thing about that? I think as long as we retain legal right to the botanicals, especially the ones we can grow ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, that's a huge piece of it. And and some places are trading that right away. Israel is one of them, right? You know, no home grow, at least right. as far as I know. Um, I think we want to be very wary of that. Yeah, I'll say that, but there's this other um, aspect, whereas once it's, uh, while there is no home grow, the police are not focusing on that so much. So, so, yeah, it's true. You, you need to really retain the freedom to, to make these things yourselves. But, um, yeah, the, the more medicalizing, the more cultural change, the less the police are going to go after this kind of stuff. This question, I'll try and formulate it. Um, we were talking about bringing this knowledge into the mainstream, but from the practical like, uh, point of view, for like our little community here, in terms of integration of different experiences. So I've never had like a mystical experience, and um, you know, it sounds very interesting. But um, seems like you mentioned religions as being. Um, having some things that would help with integration of like mystical experience or psychedelic psychedelic experiences and I might be pumping against resistance in this community towards that topic but maybe from your own perspective and just the wealth of knowledge any religious practices from different religions that you think are most helpful for integration Hot like hot. Yeah. <laughs> Best religion for integrating psychedelic experiences? Yeah. <laughs> I've got one. I've got one. Talk to the plants. I find myself the trustee of a church in the, on the North Shore, um, and it's called an experimental church. Uh, and it's exactly the kind of religious experience that we've been talking about. It's an institution that's going to pass on to a, a new pastor, and, and as any institution, it can change as, as times change and as the congregation change, but it is exactly what we're talking about, an experiment in religion. Uh, huge topic really of how uh, I think religions always uh, change and evolve and get rigid and get reformed it's the nature of human institutions and what is it within them that's, that's life giving as opposed to stultifying uh, it's a sense of community of uh, fellowship of the worth of every human being uh, supporting people through the life cycle, you know, through the births and deaths and uh, whatever that makes for religious communities, regardless of how they're labeled, or maybe non some non-religious communities as well. Uh, I think we need that community dimension in life. And one of the deepest mystical insights, quite universally, is within the great unity, there's a sense of interconnectedness. 
you know, with all humanity, if not with every atom of the universe, you know. And so if you trust that intuition, uh, everyone really is your brother and sister, you know. And uh, there's a value system that emerges out of that that makes many of us suggest that maybe a basis for ethics is simply hardwired into our organisms, you know. Uh, it's not something imposed from without, but it's something that emerges from within. And if the most, the mystics always say the ultimate reality uh, is this energy called love, you know, which is not just a soupy human emotion, but it's a very intelligent force, you know. Well, if, if that's true, uh, we could be a little bit optimistic. <laughs> that was really good. That was really good. In, in terms of religion and integrating experiences, I'd say the idea of the Sabbath is where we can approach it because the Sabbath is kind of, in some ways, without dogma, and this idea of switching from you know doing to being and taking time out. I think trying to practice moments or days like that—that that, that's a, a really good. Um, aspect of religion that, that can help integrate and it, it's relatively dogma free. That's one thing. Uh, for me, it's not really about which religion is better, but it's it, really the community side of it. And when I was uh, working on the book and exploring the different ways that people are taking ayahuasca, first I went down to Brazil and it was sort of like being a tourist, you know, and it was an experience. And then went to a workshop, an underground group in the Bay Area. Again, it was like a experience. And then I decided to explore as a journalist mainly, but one of the churches, the UDV church, where it's a real church with a community and ongoing, they meet every two weeks, they have families. And, and it was really a way that people were integrating these insights they had into their real life and real communities, real families, including with their children. And uh, that, to me, is a real religion, in a sense, because it has that community aspect. And it's great to have experiences. That's fine to try to integrate them. And, of course, that's one of the things you're doing with Ben, is this group is to have a, a kind of pseudo-church <laughs> or something, I don't know what you'd call it. But, but the, these are real, are real churches, and they can also legally take ayahuasca in this church because of a Supreme Court decision. So that's another thing. There's not that underground thing. And as it, it was, but it was harder for me to get in there as a journalist than the underground, because they don't want publicity. They're not looking for publicity. It's, it was interesting experience, but you know, I think community is just key, a really key part of it. I've said a lot about community before. <laughs> I think it's core. Alright, then we're going to offer some thanks right now. Nathaniel and I are going to give thanks and, and some closing remarks, and we'll close it out. So, Nathaniel, do you want to recognize some individuals? Sure. I want to give some personal thanks to uh, folks in the group. Uh, everyone could read the back, um, but this isn't just general, but personal thanks to Bob for leading the storytelling, uh, Jeremy for helping out with sound and tech, uh, Rhea for helping with our poster design, uh, Paige for doing some driving and picking up supplies, Ron for hosting our dinner, Heidi for also helping with uh, driving all the storytellers on Friday night, uh, did a great job, and of course, uh, Lee and I couldn't be here without our two main supports, uh, my wife Jenny and her partner Gwen. <laughs> no one's going to the doghouse today. <laughs> Sorry, these are at the top of my list, but, you know, it's two paragraphs. Uh, Angela and Mason, so thank you, too. Yeah, thanks, guys. Round of applause for them.
of course, to Northeastern and the Harvard Democracy Center and all the acknowledgments in the program. Um, thanks to the speakers for journeying from where you did to get here, for all your journeys. Um, and I, I encourage you to recognize this special opportunity we have to be so close to our movement leaders that's not like that in every movement. So I see the appreciation for that. Um, and I acknowledge the courage that all of you have faced at... Um, Carl, you mentioned the ostracization that we sometimes face in our groups, and I'm sure that we've all faced it from the normal people in our fields that were like, what are you doing? You were going to ruin your career with that. Are you really putting yourself at risk? And the jail and sort of incarceration we all face. So recognition for the courage it takes. Um, and a closing remark about integrating not only our personal healing, but also the collective healing that's taking place and leaving space for what that might look like. I think it's really important. Um, yesterday, a member of the audience asked about the boundary dissolution fostered by psychedelics and how to dissolve boundaries between people and our different parts of ourselves. Um, did I get it all? I think we'll leave it with that. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that trip to the past, a little snippet of the weekend's offerings. I'm going to read you my favorite quote from those chalks. It was at the end of Wendy's. She said, because if we don't take class and gender and race and sexuality seriously, we're going to leave those core problems of social inequality firmly in place within our movements and within this society that we're trying to transform. And that would be such a loss. Because entheogens, psychedelics, are all about revolutionary transformation. Moving away from thinking in terms of industry, think what qualities these drugs bring out in us that we want to cultivate. Love and community being primary among them. So I want to thank you for listening and let you know that if you would like to join Boston Entheogenic Network, you can find the group at facebook.com slash groups slash bentheogenic, B-E-N-T-H-E-O-G-E-N-I-C. And theogen, by the way, means approaching the God within. And it's a substance that catalyzes, substance or practice, we sort of like defined it a little bit more broadly, that catalyzes uh, an experience of finding divinity within the self, because it is there within each one of us. Don't you know? All right. See you next week. Find us at thepsychedologist.com for more episodes. And thanks again for tuning in. You know what I'm going to say. Stay conscious.